This is Thrash It Out, a show where we listen to a heavy metal album and then argue about it. I'm Anthony Johnston. And I'm Brian Latendry, and today we are talking about the 1997 album from Paradise Lost, One Second. We are indeed. And this was, uh, this is our encore episode for this volume. This was nominated by one of our patrons, the encore episodes. If you haven't heard one before, they are where we do a second album by a band that we have previously covered on the show. Uh, and they're all nominated by our Patreon supporters, and then we randomly select one from the nominations. And this one was nominated by Kenneth White, who is a longtime listener and Patreon supporter. Thank you, Kenneth. Um, if you want to join in for the next one, of course, you can become a patron uh, at patreon.com slash thrash it out and take part in this and the listener choice polls and maybe get selected for a backstage pass and all that sort of thing. But uh, yeah, this episode is the encore. And as those of you who uh, were listening, Last episode, we'll know. I am very excited about this because uh, Paradise Last are literally my favourite band, and this is one of my favourite albums of theirs. So, uh, yeah, I'm really looking forward to this. Brian, I- I'm sure, is probably not does not quite share my enthusiasm as much. I mean, so I forgot that they were your favourite band. I don't know how I forgot that. Um, probably because you don't mention them as much as I mention Megadeth every episode of this podcast. So it's, uh, uh, I don't know, it's pretty close. <laughs> yeah, it, it's probably... We could probably do a drinking game around that. Um, Kenneth was probably around for the first time that we talked about Paradise Lost, which, in case you wanted to feel old today, was eight years ago. Jesus Christ. <laughs> I know, dude, right? <laughs> what, are you, how, what did you spring that on me for? <laughs> because, tell me about it. So I, in listening to this album, I was like, wait a second, who, is this even the same band that I listened to? And so I went back and I was just like, let me just go back and listen to a few tracks off of Icon, which is the album that we did in yep. August of 2015. <laughs> it was episode, it was track five from volume one. Yeah. So there is twice as much time between the last time we talked about Paradise Lost and this episode than between Icon and this album. Because there was four years between Icon and this album. Isn't that, like, in my mind, this was like, I would have said, if you said, well, how how many years ago do you think we talked about that? I would have said probably three years ago. I might have said five, but yeah, eight. Jesus Christ. Unbelievable. <laughs> it's, it was just unbelievable. I'm like, every time, I just forget all the time that 2015 was when that everything started when we started. Yeah, I was, and so every time I go back, I'm just like 2015. How is that even possible, but it is in fact possible. And we have the audio evidence to prove it. So it was, yes, August. So it is almost exactly eight years. I think it was late August that we did that particular episode. All oh, right. All right. So yeah, as you say, you know, uh, yeah, very different sound on this album to Icon. We'll get into all that later. But uh, yeah, that's one of the reasons why I'm very excited to talk about this. I'm looking forward to this episode. Yeah, absolutely. But before we do that, Anthony, we have to go and think about our last episode. We do. And our last episode was Blind Guardian. And I pulled up the conversations from our Facebook page and uh, some great responses here and some interesting ones as well. I'm going to start off with Christopher's response, who said, great job, guys, and thank you. Anthony, you did a very good job with the research, particularly on this album being the last of BG having one foot in the speed slash thrash metal genre. 
After this album, Hanzi did stop playing bass to focus on singing, and his voice and vocal patterns got much better as a result. The band did go in a more symphonic, orchestrated, and prog direction on subsequent albums. As for this album, obviously I love it. Uh, It's Hanzi at his most guttural and the band at its most thrashy. Both of you are 100% correct on the title track. It's the mission statement of the album. You may not get it right away, but when you do, you're in for a ride. I agree with Brian about a past and future secret being a downer, not because it's a bad song, but because of where it's placed. I I love pretty much everything on here, but my standouts are script for my Requiem and the story... Uh, and the story ends. I'm alive and bright eyes. Basically, half the album, which, which is more than half the album. Yeah, yeah. he said that. Basically, <laughs> half the album. Haha. Ha. If you listen to the next album, Nightfall in Middle Earth, it sounds nothing like this, and a night at the opera sounds nothing like Nightfall. The trend continues until today, and I love that BG are a band that do not and will not rest on their laurels. Um, I love Anthony praising Andre's guitar soloing. Both Kai and Michael from Halloween are studs indeed, but Andre shows there are levels to this game. In conclusion, my favorite band was covered on my favorite podcast. Did I have anything to do with it? Uh, Maybe. It's entirely possible that Blind Guardian would have been covered without my somewhat regular posts, but I like to think that I helped things along. He said, oh, Anthony, check out the song Turn the Page from the album A Twist in the Myth to hear the guys just rock out. Keep exploring Blind Guardian because there's a lot to take in. Yeah, Christopher is the listener that when I set it to that album he is the listener that i said you know i'm sure there was somebody practically shitting themselves <laughs> when they heard blind guardian mentioned uh on the show yeah christopher is a l- clearly a massive blind guardian fan he's constantly posting about them on our facebook group bless him um yeah there probably was a little influence there as i said before you know i wasn't unaware of blind guardian completely and i might well have chosen them for the show at some point anyway but his continued boostering of them definitely had some influence. Uh, and happy to do so, because, yeah, you know, it was a really interesting album to talk about. Yeah, I mean, if there is an algorithm for the choices that we make on this podcast, it, it is the ongoing conversation with people that we have in the Facebook group, on Twitter, whatever, right, who are talking about bands that maybe we maybe haven't covered yet or, you know, that we see coming up more and more. Um, and also to go back to what we talked about earlier, it's been eight years. <laughs> I feel like that <laughs> meme of like, it's been 84 years, right? But it's been eight years now. And so we are definitely into the realm of, um, I would say the deeper cuts, right? Of, of yeah, bands sure. that we might not have had, you know, on our volume one list. So, uh, so let's see who else. So David said, I remember liking Hansi on bass. I wish he would have been able to keep up both. Um, Mike said, obviously a very talented band, but they, they're not rap, are they? He said, I'm not hearing a round and round or lay it down. He said, anyone can write a long song. Not many people can write a short song. He said, the guitars are good, though. Uh, let's see. Stuart said, uh, not for me, this one. I was trying to work out why. I like prog. I like metal. I like longer songs. And then Anthony made a comment about there being an influence from classical music. And I think that might be it. I do like some classical music, mostly modern, minimalist classical music, but maybe not mixed in with my metal. I remember feeling irritated when Richie Blackmore got too explicit with classical music and Rainbow, so maybe that's an indicator. Also, I don't know if this is just me, but are most of the token rock-slash-metal acts in Eurovision also power metal? Because I was getting Eurovision vibes listening to Blind Guardian. (laughs) Which is, yeah, you know, I hadn't thought about Eurovision before, but uh, there are occasionally rock acts in Eurovision, and uh, I don't know whether I'd call them power metal per se, but they're certainly on the sort of, you know, poppy rock end of things 
Um, yeah, the, I mean, a few people brought up the classical thing, and I, like I said, I really do hear that influence. And I think the fact that the band went in a much more symphonic and classical orchestral direction afterwards shows that there clearly was an influence there. I'm a big fan of all sorts of classical, including like, you know, sort of Baroque stuff, uh, but also very, very much, you know, the dramatic stuff like Beethoven and Rachmaninoff, you know, and Shostakovich. You know, I love composers like that who do the really big dramatic epic stuff. And I could hear a lot of influence of that sort of stuff on uh, imaginations from the other side. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and for me, it's like if that is expressed in heavy form, then I'm all on board. It's when it becomes too orchestral and right, right. like the the metal side of things kind of fades. But I love the classical elements if they're heavy. And so, yeah. And not just necessarily like speed, you know, but actual like heft. Yeah. And yeah. so, uh, speaking of Kenneth, Kenneth said, I'm kind of surprised that you didn't think that Blind Guardian are cheesy. Now, they're not <laughs> cheesy in the 80s glam way, but to me, power metal is cheesy as hell and it revels in it. All that swords and sorcery stuff, the ridiculous solos, and the -the over-the-top backing vocals were far too much for me here. Anyone playing the lute around me would probably suffer a reenactment of the acoustic guitar scene from Animal House. (laughs) But that is my issue, and I'm okay with it. But as always, I really enjoyed the chat. Uh, And he said, I'm delighted that my pick came up for the Encore episode. Uh, Phil said, so, uh, yeah, nope. Revisiting this album didn't change my opinion. I was introduced to Blind Guardian with this album back in 05 or 06, and there's just something about Hansi's voice that is just grating to me and sets my teeth on edge. I think I've been I think I've figured something out in the last month between revisiting this album and seeing Halloween live. I think I don't like power metal. He said, especially German power metal. The speed metal element of this genre is just not my thing. It sounds so how do I say it? Cliche, stereotypical, nondescript said, I can't put my finger on it, but I don't like it. And like Brian, I feel like a lot of Blind Guardian and Power Metal should check a lot of boxes for me. The D&D fantasy lyrics, the great guitar work, the stellar drumming, the soaring choruses, but in the end, it just falls completely flat for me. And as Kenneth said in his uh, post, it ventures in cheese for sure. And not the good cheese, like glam hair metal cheese or typo negative cheese or ghost cheese. Great episode, (laughs) nonetheless. (laughs) <laughs> there's a lot of a lot of flavors of cheeses i guess yeah. out there <laughs> yeah uh, the cheese thing a few people pick me up on that um and i i don't know i still i just don't get that sense from it i do get it from some power metal like you know when i was thinking of doing another power metal album i did listen to a fair few other power metal bands things like dragon force and stuff and that i do find quite cheesy but there was something about i don't know why something about that particular album from that particular band that just didn't didn't uh you know strike my cheese notes <laughs> for me you dragon force is actually too fast for me oh really that, yep they're just too fast and so there's something about it that doesn't fully register with me because it's so fast right right like i just don't feel like they give the music enough space and even though they have incredible guitar players i also feel like it lacks the punch that we that I talk about a lot with the whole power metal thing. I think mm-hmm. like whereas this album just like nailed it. Um let's but see. But did you here. find the album cheesy is the question. <laughs> well, yeah, but like that's everything that I love. Like my favorite things in the world are D&D, like fantasy stuff, uh and obviously B horror movies and hair metal and things so like all in theatricality and like 
the dramatic elements and stuff like that. So for me, like those are all. If it's guess, cheese, like I love the cheese. Well, I guess it depends whether you define those as cheese, doesn't it? You know, I mean, yes, it well, had all of those things for sure. But I think of those things, they're nerdy, no question. But I still think there's a difference between nerdiness and cheese, something in the execution. Well, there's and there's elements of fantasy, too. Like there's darker fantasy, there's, you know, horror tinged fantasy. And there's, you know, the kind of swashbuckling, you know, types of adventures and stuff like that. Like, uh, who's that band? Is it Ailstorm? Oh, yeah. yeah. Um, you know, like the pirate metal and stuff like that. So I do feel like there are differing sort of levels of that fantasy element. And But yeah, I think to some people, the idea of fantasy overall, it feels cheesy. But mm. for me, it's just one of my favorite things in the world. So um, yeah, I didn't, I don't know if we got into the cheese factor in the in our discussion or not. But I mean, I don't feel like it's overly cheesy. Yeah, good. Um, let's see where, oh, Joe said, uh, like Brian, I initially found the opener made it hard to get into after a few listens, the songs grew on me, but it took time. As Anthony said, sometimes there seemed to be too little repetition to pull you in. I've started listening to some of their subsequent albums and it seems like maybe there are some catchy tunes. Uh, and he listed into the storm as one of those, uh, as is often the case, listening to your discussion made me more interested than I otherwise would have been. I feel like that's a mission accomplished, right? Yeah, for sure, yeah. yeah. Um, There's not much more we can ask for, really. And let's see. David said, I'm not a doctor, but I think it's clear that Anthony is suffering from a terrible, tragic, and possibly incurable condition, cheese blindness. (laughs) He said, this is the ripest, (laughs) most aromatic gorgonzola-level fromage, (laughs) which you know is delicious, but I don't want an entire meal of it. A track at a time, this is fantastic. A whole album is not for me. More power to those who love it, though. How long was that album? Do you remember? Uh, I don't think it was massively long, was it? Because I mean, that it, does it, bring it up a good sure, point. But... Not just for power metal, but I think for for any music that is like a sustained dose of like... If there's if the if it lacks contrast, you know what I mean. Like if all the songs are in that same level of energy and stuff like that, like you know, the longer albums can start to sort of wear you down. By True, the it's, end. it's forty nine minutes. Oh yeah, that's so not not too no. long. Yeah, I wouldn't call that a meal. I'd call that. I'd call <laughs> well, that an would, appetizer and I, a salad. You know, I would like call a, it a meal, but not a feast. Okay, yeah, no, that's a good. <laughs> that's a, you're right. That is a meal. I like big portions, so for me, <laughs> <laughs> that might be. Might be part of a meal. Uh, let's see. Jay said, great episode. Have to agree with Anthony about the lack of groove in power metal. Seems to be the thing that keeps me from getting super into it. Also, really looking forward to the next episode. Uh, let's see. JD said, first of all, it's not a sea shanty. It's a faux madrigal. <laughs> Which, to me, was the... I mean, that will forever be my favorite <laughs> discussion that came out of that. Of probably any episode. Uh, this is at the same time that most... The, the most Anthony sentence in this podcast so far, and also a perfect encapsulation of why I am a loyal listener. In other <laughs> nudes, good episodes, but it won't make a convert out of me. Anthony hit the nail on the head in saying this album lacks groove. I tend to find most power metal too po-faced in general. It has to go off the scale in either a Man of War or an Angus McSix sort of way for me to find it entertaining. A bit of cheese won't do. I want the whole shop. So I think what we're seeing here is that 
definitely this has sparked a cheese discussion. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and we have sort of two camps. We have the give me all the cheese camp. And then we have the, I kind of like cheese just sort of sprinkled on top of right. what I'm, you know, what I'm eating. Bit, of, so, parma, bit of Parmesan, but not the whole yeah, dish. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Maybe a little Romaine mix kind of thrown <laughs> in there too, but, or uh, Romano, not Romaine. That's a lettuce. Um, yeah. So interesting there. Todd said, regarding Anthony's question about the reason for Germany producing so many fantasy power metal bands, uh, Wagnerian opera seems to share many essential elements with the music of artists like Blind Guardian, both in subject matter and performance. Yeah, and that's a really good point. And I was kind of annoyed with myself for not having made that connection myself during the episode. Because as soon as I read that, I was like, oh, actually, yeah. Yeah, that seems like a pretty good... I mean, who can say if it's, you know, it's almost impossible to say for sure. But I would put a lot of weight behind that, yeah. And funnily enough, I'm not actually a huge fan of Wagnerian opera. It's not really, you know, like I said, I'm a huge classical listener, but opera in particular, and especially Wagnerian opera, just really isn't my thing. Uh, which is funny, because it is kind of, I suppose, the closest thing to, you know, to prog metal or, uh, <laughs> yeah, you know, or power metal that you're going to get out of uh, classical. But yeah, it's just, it's not my thing. Uh, he also went on to say, Blind Guardian's one of those bands that I've been aware of for a while, but never got around to checking out. After listening to this record, it's pretty much exactly what I expected. The only real surprise was when I heard the watching you background vocals in Bright Eyes and thought, wait a minute, this sounds like Death Clock. <laughs> all in all, uh, they are very good at what they do and obviously have a very clear vision of what they want their music to be. But this will most likely be an album that I will only revisit on rare occasions as a change of pace. Can definitely understand why people who are into this type of thing are so passionate about Blind Guardian, but it's just not my bag for the most part. Uh, Raphael said, great episode as always. It got me listening to the whole discography. And this album is wow. a definite standout. Uh, CJ said, this was an interesting episode. I don't know much about Blind Guardian. And despite them being on the periphery of loads of things I like, uh, I love power metal and symphonic metal and D&D &D and all that stuff. The more fantastical and over the top, the better. So it's odd that I've never been able to find love for them. Even though, like you say in the podcast, they seem like super chill guys. Uh, I think you actually answered a lot of my own questions about why I can't love Blind Guardian. He said, thanks. The seven-plus-minute opening track as a barrier to entry, the prog tendencies, uh, no song under five minutes, and then Anthony, much more versed in classical knowledge than me, probably nailed it by explaining the actual classical influences here rather than just the usual stick a bombastic orchestra sample over the top of some power metal <laughs> style of all the symphonic metal I love. I find actual classical music really difficult to listen to. Interesting. Uh, that said... Listening to the album properly, I think my biggest problem with it is the vocals. I like his more screamy vocals, but when he goes clean, there's something not right. And likewise, while normally I love a huge voice choir, these ones, while perfectly harmonized, sound weird. Ultimately, the vision I get in my head when he's singing clean and the background vocals rise up is that of a German children's TV presenter leading a, <laughs> leading a knees up in a beer keller. Yeah. <laughs> uh, it's so bright and cheerful and clean. I think that's what pushes me out. Uh, let's see. Andrew said, it's a mixed bag for me. Love all the fantasy gubbins. Love all the bombast. Love the progginess. I dig the big queen-esque choruses, and I love uh, Hansi's voice. But as soon as the vocals drop away, the tempo picks up, and they go full twiddly-widdly power metal solo. I am instantly bored. 
Quite frustrating, to be honest, though the fact that Anthony mentions they go more prog as time goes by makes me quite interested in their later stuff. And Peter said, great episode, been a fan of Blind Guardian since I stumbled upon this album a few years after it came out. I did drift away a bit with some of their latest work, uh, later work. However, I really loved their most recent album, The God Machine. It brought back more of the edge that had been missing, and it's an excellent melding of Blind Guardian's earlier work and their more recent progressive outings. And that oh, yeah. is the feedback on Blind Guardian. Yeah, it was. There was a lot of there was a lot of feedback. I mean, yeah, there was. You know, I, I know you read the highlights and the comments there, but there were also lots of spin-off discussions from that. Lots of uh, you know replies and going back and forth. People had opinions uh, on the band, and yeah, like you said, what more can we ask for than just making people listen again to an album or bring their sort of a, make them aware of an album and yeah, spark those kind of conversations. That's great. Opinions, cheese talk, lots of good stuff from this one. <laughs> so much talk about cheese. And now that we've talked about it here, it'll probably like spark it in response to this episode as well. <laughs> For sure. <laughs> but you know one thing that isn't cheesy, Ryan? Tell me. <laughs> it's the album One Second by Paradise Lost. I there would is... disagree, but really? We'll, we'll oh, wow. That. Yeah. Okay, that's going to be interesting because I would say there is zero cheese on this album. Wow. Yeah. Okay, I feel like it is a it's a cheese shop, but we'll <laughs> we'll get into that. <laughs> oh man! All right, before we start talking about the album, uh, I will just remind everyone again: yes, we, you can support us at patreon.com slash thrash it out, uh, where you know, sort of, you can help just keep the show going and help contribute towards our things like you know website costs and occasionally we have to buy albums as well to listen to you know so we don't own everything and especially when it's a listener choice or something um you know we occasionally have to go out and buy an album so that we can listen to it and talk about it so if you support us you're helping us do all that sort of thing it's great uh, you can also join in that discussion at, on our facebook group which is facebook.com slash groups slash thrashed out and join our little community which is uh, as we've said many times is uh, a nice little sort of oasis of sanity on the internet you know everybody there is really good and pleasant and well-mannered um you know it's just kind of we all have different tastes and we disagree about them but nobody's a dick about it and that really is that's all we require um and it's the one rule that we kind of enforce fairly rigidly but we don't have to enforce actually most of the time there's only a few occasions where we have had to enforce it most people in the community are really great about yeah you know just not getting bent out of shape uh, about arguments about it's arguments about music and taste for heaven's sake you know there's no reason to get silly about it it's I, I it's cliche to say oh i can count on one hand the number of times but i can truly count on one hand the number of times that we've had to like yeah just remind people that like this is not that place um and i was just talking to someone on our facebook page this morning about the uh in the here's your megadeth mention about uh megadeth at the wacken fence festival yesterday they had marty friedman come and play a few songs with them um for the second time in like the last six months and we were just kind of talking about that and uh yeah it's like anytime i check in i try to go in on fridays and talk about new music and stuff like that but if i'm not in there posting about new music than someone else's oh, and yeah. then you know people are sharing videos and news stories and things like that and so it's multiple times per week there are great conversations going on about so many different things and it's really it's a place i, I it is the only reason that i still use facebook 
It's like, I, that is the reason I keep an account on Facebook <laughs> is to go and check out our community. It's not quite the only reason that I keep it, but it is a big reason. And actually, it, you just made me think then saying, I guess it's kind of like, uh, it's kind of like a, a heavy metal bar in a way in the, yeah, you know, it's full of regulars, occasionally new people wander in. Everybody just sort of like joshes one another about their tastes and what have you, but, you know, it never descends into bar violence. And then every so often, some banging record will come on the, uh, you know, yeah. on the stereo and everybody gets on the dance floor and starts uh, banging their heads. Um, and that I guess that's the episodes <laughs> in that analogy. But yeah, it is it is just a wonderful community. We're very, very grateful that it's grown around this podcast and honestly we don't have other than that rule of like you know just insisting everybody not be a dick to one another we haven't really had an awful lot to do with it Uh, not that we don't take part but in terms of how it's grown and sort of become this amazing community you know i don't really feel like we're responsible for a lot of that other than setting the tone i guess Uh, yeah we're lucky enough to have found a lot of people who are very happy to follow that and take part in that community totally and i'm sure there's people who like found the community before they found the podcast right because i think there are a few for sure you know and so it is i I think just in general we all kind of miss that especially if you're of a certain age and you had you know the music shops and stuff like that that you could go into and and you know hang out and talk to people about the new music and stuff like that i feel like there is a lot of us who miss that and are looking for that and it's nice that there is a place where we can go and talk about that stuff. And there are so many different fans of different genres in that group. And so there's always something new to discover. And to your point, like people are generally respectful of the stuff that even if they don't like it, you know, they like, we talk about metal being a broad church. It's been really just an awesome thing that has grown out of the show. It's definitely reflected in that group, for sure. Yeah, everything from hair to death to black to groove to whatever, you know. Um, Yeah, everything's represented there. All right, let us talk about Paradise Lost then. So I'm not going to recap their entire history or anything because we have covered them on the show, even though it was eight years ago. I know. (laughs) But you can go back and listen to the episode on Icon, uh, you know, if you don't know the band. Um, Yeah, you know, regulars will know, as I say, they're my favourite band. Uh, so I've followed them from long before this album, right up to the present day. They are still, still recording, still releasing new stuff, still touring, uh, and they're still great. Um, but that sort of, as we alluded to earlier, that gap between albums, I mean, that's kind of, you, you have to talk about the context of this album because Icon was only four years and only two albums prior to this. And yet... If you don't know the band, you could well listen to this and just assume it's a different band entirely. Uh, I mean, even Nick's vocals aren't that um, similar to what he was doing on Icon. Um, I think the it's, the context of the music scene at the time is important as well. Like, the UK in the early to mid-90s, the UK didn't produce any grunge bands of note for a start. Like, there were just that scene... Not that it passed us by, but in terms of homegrown bands, there were almost none. You know, the the most notable UK grunge band anybody 
most people around here of my generation will know was a band called Stiltskin, who were literally created for a jeans advert. <laughs> you know, okay. it was that's the level we were at. We just, it's not something we did very well at all. Um, there were popular rock bands around who sort of went back to basics, which obviously was what a lot of grunge was about. Bands like uh, Wild Hearts and Terror Vision, who had some success. Um, you know, and theirs was a very much a back to basics kind of style, but it wasn't, it still wasn't grunge. You know, we just didn't have any great grunge or groove metal successes actually, which of course was the other big thing in the early to mid nineties with Pantera. Um, and as a result, we were not that we were metal starved, but we didn't have, as I say, any kind of big stars. And after Icon, the album we covered before. And then the album they did after that, Draconian Times, Paradise Lost were literally being hailed by people like Kerrang as the next Metallica. And I don't mean, I'm not joking there. They were literally on the cover going like, this is the next Metallica. Uh, They were the great white hope of British metal, if you were. And of course they weren't. (laughs) That's the thing. Yeah. Because what happened was Draconian Times was enormous, like huge hits, very popular. It was a very mainstream sound for them at the time, you know, as as metal went uh, and sort of riding the rise of the gothic metal wave. But what happened was uh, those tours kept the band on the road for a solid three years. And by the end of it, they were completely burnt out. Um, and there's, apparently, there's a, a story in... I've got um, a biography of Paradise Lost called No Celebration, which was bought for me by a long-time listener uh, of the show and friend of mine, David Richardson, actually. Uh, it was very kind of him, and it's a very good book. Um, and in that book, they recount that at, at one point, near the end of that tour, near the end of the Draconian Times tour, the band were expecting to go home for, I think, three weeks' holiday. You know, they'd done it, I think they were finishing with Donington or something, and then they were going to go home for a few weeks. And their manager called them while they were on the road and said, oh, actually, I've got a dozen more shows lined up for you. Jeez. Right, and the band were like, oh, for fuck's sake. <laughs> and so right? Aaron A.D., the rhythm guitarist, apparently, who is the, 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 the roles of everybody within PL, because they're such a relatively private band are not clear but as a long-time fan of the years i've always got the impression that aaron is the closest thing they have to a sort of he's the business-minded one like he's the guy who tracks all the band's memorabilia he's the guy who can remember every show where they were what happened and seems to be the one who sort of has a good relationship with the management i mean not that they don't all have a good relationship but you know what i mean Right. He apparently had a quiet word with the management and said, if we don't go home, you won't have a band anymore. Like, we are on the verge of just completely breaking Imploding. down here. Yeah. yeah. Um, and and so they did. They, they didn't do those shows. They did go home. They did rest and recuperate. But it made me think, when I was thinking about this, it made me think, hmm, who else do we know who went on a gruelling three-year tour to promote their most successful album, and then by the end of it, they were so burned out that they were completely sick of their own music and they decided that they needed to do something different. Like, does that sound familiar? <laughs> and so in a way, they kind of were the new Metallica, just without the global success. <laughs> well, I mean, that context makes a ton of sense. Now, just thinking about listening to this album. Yeah. Everything that you just said definitely 
helps frame kind of what because for me this album sounds like it was created by a band who doesn't care anymore that is kind of my vibe which is really funny. There is an album like that in PL's catalogue, but it was actually a couple of albums after this. Like, yeah, okay. So, but that that definitely tracks for me. This this to me felt like an album made by a band who was burned out. And um, yeah, interesting, interesting yeah, stuff. Well, they were burned out on metal. See, that's that's the thing about this album, and one of the reasons that I do love this album and I, you know, sort of spoilers, I'll say that up front. I absolutely love this album. Like I said, it's one of my favorite albums of theirs um, because they were actually still enthused and into it. Uh, and they did put a lot of work and effort into it. And by all accounts, they all still really like this album as I think they should. Well, um, but what they were sick of was metal. Like by the time, uh, right now, uh, and, uh, and I mentioned this when we did the Icon episode, all through their career, and even at the start, even in their early days, Paradise Lost have never stood still. Every single album sounds different to the one before. They change, they evolve, they take risks, and they don't like to uh, repeat themselves. It's one of the things that I absolutely love about them. And even their first four or five albums, you could see that. Every album was different to what came before. But, by the time, but they were always metal albums. Right. But by the time they came to writing this one, yeah, basically Greg McIntosh and Nick but, Holmes, who write all the songs, they were just sick of metal. Okay, so let me then continue on that path, right? Because, like, this album, to me, is only a risk for their existing fan base. Because this, in a lot of ways, feels like a very vanilla album in terms of sounding like a lot of other bands. And so... That to me, the risk was alienating their own fan base. But in terms of like mainstream success, like this, this to me feels like an album that was made for the radio, was made for the moment, um, and you- was made. But it's almost like, and uh, let me just preface also by saying, like, I don't dislike this album, and it actually made me angry that I don't dislike this album because I feel like <laughs> this album is so unremarkable that it actually pisses me off that I like it so much. And, <laughs> and because my first, honestly, my first listen through, I was like, this sounds like a band that I would have heard in the background of a deleted scene of the movie Reality Bites, <laughs> where the main characters were at a bar and having a conversation and there was music playing in the background. And that music was this album. Um, to me, at first listen, it could have you could have told me this was three doors down. You could have told me this was any number of like nineties alt rock bands that I hear in Starbucks now when I you know go uh, to a Starbucks or or hear that kind of nineties like college playlist sort of thing. It it felt very unremarkable to me at all. But and even, the thing is, even for ninety seven, because that's the thing for me. Like, in 1997, there were not a lot of bands making music that sounded like this. I don't think. Certainly, I didn't hear them. And I, I, I know feel I, like over here, if you put this band in a playlist over here, I wouldn't even be able to tell them. I wouldn't even be able to tell that they weren't just part of the current American music scene over here, based on Well, but like I say, I, yeah, I mean, you've got to take things in context of their time. Um, but really, I mean, a song like Lydia or something, you're not going to hear that on the radio. Yeah, I that's... mean, 
so well, anyways i i'm i'm talking about it like i don't like the album i'm telling you that like i the first few listens through this i was just like it feels like this band said well why don't we do one of those albums that you know that that this other uh that this like a non-metal album that like other fans of other genres are listening to we're going to do that and we actually did that really well it's like they took a genre that wasn't them and decided to make an album in that genre and then did a really good job at that but it feels like it was them doing something that wasn't really them that's good and so and and i say this not being a paradise lost fan but i like went back and listened to a few songs from icon and like the just the energy right out of the gate on that album is just in your like just heavy just heavy and raw and crunchy and just and this one here i just feel like they sanded the edges off of all the guitars even the songs where the guitar comes in heavy it still feels somewhat muted and not really up in the mix even when it's like the the primary element of this particular part of the song and so it just felt subdued in a lot of ways even when there were elements of like what i thought they sounded like from before having said all of that with every listen through this album especially with a lot of the catchier they have great choruses throughout this album they have like really um kind of catchy hooks and all of those things definitely started to grow on me to the point where i had the album on in the background while i was working basically the whole week and was just like listening i feel like it's very listenable all the way through and like then just kind of throwing it on again and listening to it through it again and so it definitely grew on me um especially over the course of like the last week and a half but it just to me almost felt like their heart wasn't in it you know wow yeah no that's i mean that's fascinating as you say you know from the perspective that you don't have the context of how of when this came out and how it was recorded like yeah that's i mean i saw a great quote actually in that same book uh about this album saying that guitars adorn rather than drive the songs and that's absolutely true. I think that's a perfect description of this album because there are some tracks which seem not to have any guitar at all. Yeah, now, it's like Where's Waldo? Like right, I wouldn't now, even know Adorn is I think that might be too strong a word for some of the songs. <laughs> well, but here's the thing and I oh man, I'm going to have to play you the next album host at some point. Um so as far as I'm aware, every track on this album does have guitars, but they are a sometimes low in the mix and b sometimes playing things that don't sound like guitars they're being played through midi equipment and pedals yeah. and stuff yep. so that the tone they produce doesn't sound like a guitar and that's especially in evidence on their next album where they went full depeche mode basically the album after this host is like literally an electronica album but to me it still sounds like them because what it is is really, really fucking dark and gothic and depressing, even though it's also an electronica album. And that's what, to me, makes this album stand out from run-of-the-mill mainstream rock at the time, is that this album, because even the previous album, uh, even though it was goth- like full-on gothic metal, it was kind of triumphalist in a way, and a lot of the songs are very kind of upbeat. Um, but here, every song 
is down. Every yeah. song is dark. <laughs> totally. And, it you is. Know, Every song bleak. is just, uh, yeah. things are terrible and yeah. people are terrible <laughs> and relationships exactly. are terrible and <laughs> you never escape your past and all of that stuff. And you're all going to die. And, so, yeah. <laughs> so here was my kind of thought about it. It's goth hair metal. <laughs> like that's what it is. It, this is goth hair metal. It's very, um, it's like popcorn for goths, but okay. like that popcorn is, you know, the the butter is black, and the, <laughs> you know, and, and it's I, and, and it's gonna... mixed in with tears, and it's all kind of. But this is what this. It's gothic. It's goth hair metal. I've got to say that's hilarious, especially because this is the album where they cut their hair as well. <laughs> of course they did, because it's the opposite, right? And so it's their take on hair metal. Oh, but man. yeah. This to me, like I see a scene playing out in my head where like a goth is just making fun of someone who listens to hair metal and then they put this album on. And they're like, This is so <laughs> this is so elevated compared to what we're talking. But it's not, because the like the lyrics are just like, to your point, they're so cheesily depressing that oh, they're nice. almost cartoonish oh, no, in the man. way that they're being delivered of like oh my goodness isn't everything the worst thing that it could ever possibly be and then they have like catchy choruses along it so it is it's hair metal for goths man no but see that's okay that's as we're definitely going to argue about that then because to me like again, like I said, what part of what makes this unmistakable Paradise Lost is that it is, you know, dark and bleak. But even with the you know, the atmospheric stuff and the experimental approach to, you know, writing their kind of music, you've still got Greg's melody lines and Nick's vocals and lyrics. And I think this album is uh an almost or maybe the best, certainly one of the best examples of what a fucking great lyricist he is, as well as what a great vocalist. Because on this album, his melodies, his cadence, and his lyrics, I think are just superb. Like, he doesn't put a foot wrong on this album at all. Uh, so I will yeah, agree that's... with you on cadence and melodies for sure. Because like I said, this album just continued to grow on me and sort of live in my head for sure. The lyricist part, I think I would disagree with you on, but, um, yeah, but I definitely, I mean, from, from a musical standpoint, I think this is a, do I say great album? It's a, it's definitely a good album. Um, and I like the album overall. It just like continued to make me think of a lot of different things. Like there's a few songs on this album that I just kept thinking of Duran Duran's 1994 song come undone i just felt like that they were like that is a really good song can we make a whole album out of that like let's take that as the blueprint and then make an album off of that song and so it just was it just was really different but from what i've learned from you and even from the bits of paradise paradise lost that i've listened to over the years like being different from one album to the next feels like that's part of their thing oh it is and yeah. You know, like I, I think I actually after we did that um, icon episode, I bought Medusa, oh, I think, yeah. which came yeah. out in like 2017, and that was like super doomy and heavy. Yeah. And then going back to listen to a few tracks off of Icon, I was like, damn, the, the Metallica influence like was, you know, strong, but the grit and the and the heaviness and the rawness of the guitars and stuff like that, and just how like 
powerful they were and things like that, like just such a contrast to this. So like the whole thing about them kind of being tired of metal um, and wanting to do something different and being able to do that thing. Well, that all completely tracks. Well, and that's the thing. Like, yeah, like I said, they, they had, they do change, they do evolve, but they also, they never lose sight of how to write a really fucking good song. You know, well, and they never lose sight of the sadness, Anthony. I oh, think that's, that's important. <laughs> for sure. No, I mean, that is evident on every album. But I mean, sadness their stated, is their North Star. Their stated aim with this album was that they wanted to make, uh, there's a, a quote from Greg, and I can't remember exactly, but I'll, I'll paraphrase. And he basically says that he felt that as good as Icon and Drac Times were, that they were kind of shallow in that, you know, there wasn't a lot of layers to the songs. Uh, and he wanted to make an album that would reward repeated listening while at the same time, yes, sim- like kind of simplifying and demetalling their sound, mm. as it were. And so it's interesting to hear you say that the more you listen to it, the more you got out of it and the more you got into it, even if, yeah, you know, it's not an album that you ever would have, well, expected from a metal band or necessarily, you know, chosen to listen to yourself. Definitely it rewards repeated listens. And I think the way that it has rewarded it for me is that there is more variance in the songs than first listen. Like it it really starts things I I feel like started to stand on their own more. I'd go along with that. With repeated uh, listens. Yeah. And Um, so, yeah, like my overall vibes of the album continued to improve all the way through as I listen to it again and again and again. But those couple, you know, first listens, I was just like, what the fuck is deleted scene from reality bites. The, uh, (laughs) although I still do stand by the hair metal for goths. I think they nailed it on this album. I think that I think this is the blueprint for gothic hair metal, hair metal. Man. Um, so, the, the, a few other things I'll just mention before we get to the track by track. Uh, I mentioned in, the icon episode that um paradise lost are quite unusual in the world of metal in that they have such a long-standing lineup the only position that has ever changed in the band is the drummer um everybody else still in the band has been from day one still in it now and they're basically like fast friends like they are four absolute best friends that just yeah you know have kept on keeping on together been through the highs and lows um but the drummer didn't change until the album before this one, Draconian Times, uh, where their, the drummer they'd had for their first four albums, uh, Matthew Archer, nicknamed Tuds, basically they had to let him go because he just wasn't good enough. Like they were all huh. getting, they were all getting much, much better as musicians and their songwriting was getting better and more complex and he just couldn't keep up. Um, and uh, I can't remember it is detailed in the biography. I can't remember exactly who broke the news. It might have been Aaron actually, because I think he might have been Tudz's, you know, sort of the closest one to him. Um, really difficult thing to do because these are people they literally they you know they grew up going to the same schools and like hanging out in the same metal bars as teenagers and stuff in a small community. So not an easy thing to do. Uh, luckily, he went on to be like a massively successful TV producer and has no regrets whatsoever. <laughs> um, in fact, he was involved with MTV 
Europe for a while, uh, and I think was even may have been a producer on Headbangers Ball over here for a few oh, years. Awesome. Yeah. So, like, and booked the band, you know, on occasion when because uh, again when they were at the height of their sort of commercial success. So yeah, you know, all's well that ends well, as it were. I gather that they're all even still friends, but he just wasn't good enough as a drummer anymore. Uh, and you can hear that a little bit on Icon. Actually, you can hear him struggling on a few of the songs, frankly. But they brought in a guy called Lee Morris to replace him as drummer. Like I said, the first new member of the band they'd had since they formed. Um, And by this time, they'd been going for... Well, by the time they brought in Lee Morris, they'd been going for, I think, six years. You know, in the first six years in the life of a band, obviously, are going to be fairly important and formative. Very important and formative. Um, But Lee was brilliant. He was absolutely brilliant. If you go and listen to Draconian Times now, the the difference in drumming is just night and day. He was a great drummer, and he was a great drummer for the band. Like, really skilled, but also just has a very distinctive style and way of playing, um, which I really like. I personally think he was the best drummer that Paradise Lost have had. Not necessarily in terms of sheer skill, you know, or speed of playing or anything like that, but nobody else that they've played with has his style or his groove uh, and that the reason i'm mentioning all of this is that i think really comes across in this album and actually even though when they sort of shifted sound a little bit to make this album he's on record as saying like he you know obviously he was very new but even so he wasn't sure about it he was like guys we've just had a massively successful album shouldn't we do another one <laughs> right. uh you know how about that um but nevertheless obviously he didn't at that point have enough authority or influence in the band to say no um so he just did the best he could on this album with the songs you know sort of dialing into the songs as they were given to him and i think he did a fantastic job and i actually think he's one of the reasons this album works i really think any other drummer certainly that they've had over the years recording this album and it wouldn't have been anywhere near as good even though there aren't sort of, you know, big metal drums that you'd associate with a metal band on this album. Nevertheless, there is drumming on every single track, and it is really important on every single track, I think. Um, I would agree with you, and I think in a lot of ways the drums are the heaviest thing on this album. Yeah, yeah, I agree. And so even though he may have to be somewhat restrained to stay within the song that they're writing... In any given song on this album, I think when you listen to how he hits, he hits hard. Yeah. And like you can definitely, there's some songs where by far the drums are the standout heaviest thing on the song. Yeah, absolutely. I'm really glad you noticed that because, yeah, as I say, it really stands out to me. They fell out here. He recorded, I think, another three albums after this with them, maybe four, uh, and then basically was fired um, because he didn't get on well enough with Greg the uh the guitarist and principal songwriter unfortunately he and greg clashed almost from the start apparently you know when they were on tour it just became apparent that they do not share sense of humor or outlook on life or any of that sort of thing um and, clashing uh, with the main songwriter will do it exactly yeah and it just became untenable and i say so i st- i think it's a real shame they've had some great drummers since then of course they have you know some very very skilled drummers but i think they lost something quite significant when they lost Lee Morris, I think he was a fantastic drummer for this band. Because one of the things that he was really good at, as you say, was hitting hard, even when the songs weren't necessarily hard. Um, Which is a whole fascinating discussion, like, in and of itself, right? About, like, finding your 
who was I just talking about this with? I, I was just talking with somebody about basically like you come into these bands, there's always a there's frequently a primary songwriter, right? Like, there, yeah. or there's one or two people that are sort of setting the creative vision for the band and stuff like that. And then you have these tremendously talented musicians, these super creative people who come into a band and often have to curb their own, like find their place, right? Find your place, whether it's on one song or one album or when you're playing live or whatever, but like find the place where you live within this this thing that's this driven unit. by someone else yeah you know and and do it in a way that contributes to this thing and supports this thing without breaking it even though it's not yours yeah even though it's not yours and even though you don't get to drive it but finding that place within it where you can and so you know we i think we're talking about like different guitar players that come into a band, right? But the, you know, they're not the main, and there's so many examples, obviously Megadeth, Metallica, that kind of stuff. But like, you look at like, where do you find your spot and, and how do you sort of carve out a niche for yourself in this thing that's driven by someone else? And it's really incredible when you see musicians that can do that over a sustained period of time and find that place. Yeah. I'll tell you actually who's a good comparison. It's not metal, but I'll tell you who's a good comparison there, and that is Alan Wilder in Depeche Mode. So uh, Alan Wilder joined Depeche Mode uh, on I think they're like their third album or something, and it was or maybe their second. I'm not sure, but it was basically after their principal songwriter had left when Depeche Mode formed. Their principal songwriter um, was there for one album and then left and went off to form another band and uh, two more very successful bands are following that actually um and alan the guy called alan wilder came in and he was never the principal songwriter but what he was was a much more skilled musician than any of the other um members of the band and he did take part in the songwriting but it was you know because he was the newcomer he was you know again as you said he wasn't it wasn't his he wasn't driving it um but his contributions, I mean, the, the grand grew in leaps and bounds and then obviously became, you know, this enormously successful, globally successful, massive band uh, while he was a member. And what his contribution was to that was never quite clear until he left. Uh, yep. You know, whether he fired, whether they fired him or whether he quit, you know, that's kind of, that's an argument for the ages. Um, but basically, same sort of thing where he was just kind of like, that's it, I've had enough, I'm off. Um, and you can tell. Right. You're like, what's missing here? Like, and the then you're very, like, oh, yeah, that's missing. The, the, the album's immediately following his departure. You're like, oh, oh, something is very different here. Yep. Yeah. Not that it might not. You might not like the new thing, no, and but just good in that albums, place of but, like, wow, this yeah. was, a, you can really feel the difference here. Yeah, absolutely. And funnily enough, actually thinking about it, the difference is a bit like when Morris left Paradise Lost in that they kind of lost their swing a bit. And it was a bit mm. like that with Alan Wilder leaving Depeche Mode in that they kind of had a bit of groove and a bit of swing with him that they haven't really recaptured since then. Uh, and I'd say the same is true of Paradise Lost, much as I love a lot of their more recent albums. Um, but yeah, with Morris, they had a bit of groove and a bit of swing that they've never quite recaptured. Um, the other thing I'll say, one other thing that I just want to mention is one of the reasons I will happily admit, you know, that part of the reason I love this album is because it came out at a, at a, 
you know how some albums come out at a good time in your life yep. um, and you just associate fond memories with them. So this album came out, it was released just before I moved to Bath to work on .NET magazine at Future Publishing. Oh, yeah. Which, you know, I'm, I think I've mentioned before on the show, and certainly people who know me know that that was a very happy time of my life. That was a very good, you know, I enjoyed that. It was, you know, a dream job almost. Um, and also at the time, I was dating a girl who lived in Oxford. And so I was constantly driving back and forth between Bath and Oxford, which is about a two-hour drive each way. And this was, because this was the most recent Paradise Lost album at the time, this was one of the albums that I was constantly playing in yeah. my car and, you know, singing along to at the top of my voice as I drove at top speed along highways and country roads uh, during those journeys. So... You know, I will freely admit that there's a certain amount of bias in that I just listened to this album over and over and well, over again. It's one of those that I know, you know, there are some albums that you just know like the back of your hand. Every yeah. sound, nuance, every breath is just ingrained in my memory. I could, you know, if I had some magical power to recreate music from my imagination, I could recreate this entire album Perfectly. I love that. <laughs> well, and to be fair, you know, when, when your job's going really well and you're in a great relationship, you want to listen to music that reflects that. And so <laughs> listening to an album like this, that's really a celebration of all things, relationships and having a real purpose in life is kind of just, it just reminds you constantly of like how good things are going for you. And so that's the gothic. I life, totally get it. Um, <laughs> you know, and that's, yeah. Yeah. A bit of goth hair metal. Indeed. That is the gothic life. Uh, all right, let's get into details. So, yes, it was recorded in 97, as you mentioned. Uh, there are 12 songs at 50 minutes or 13 songs and 55 minutes if you include the Digipack bonus track, which we are going to talk about here. Yes. Um, so even though it's a Digipack bonus, like this was, the, this was peak CD era. Um, and so it is kind of considered as you know even though it was a bonus track most people have got the edition of the album with that track on it um just because like i say it was peak cd it was produced by a guy called sank uh real name sandqvist he was uh i think he's now actually a record executive you know label executive but he was a producer at the time who did a lot of uh dance music and uh hip-hop but had also worked with the likes of clawfinger uh, Swedish, um, hence working with Clawfinger. Um, so he wasn't completely alien to the idea of heavy music, but he was not a metal producer. And they deliberately, again, they moved away from the guy who'd produced their, I think, three previous albums, uh, certainly last two, Simon Ephemy, who was a very, very accomplished metal and rock producer and had helped them create these enormously successful metal albums. And they deliberately didn't want to go with him again because they wanted something, somebody who would challenge them and somebody who would help them get away from that side of things for a while. Uh, and so, yeah, as I say, they went with this guy called Sank, who, by all accounts, had a lot of influence over the songs on this album. Not that the songs weren't written, but in terms of their arrangement and on occasion paring them down, like really, really sort of mi making them minimalist. Uh, there's a couple of concrete examples that I'll mention when we talk about the tracks. You know, he did have quite an influence on this album, um, which helped make it, as I say, just completely different to everything they'd done before. It is well produced, I should say, in terms of audio. That is one For thing sure. that, you know, regardless of what you may think of the contents, like it's this, the sonic quality of it is really high. Right. It's like the guitars 
are not muted because they were recorded or mixed poorly. Like everything feels very intentional about it. Totally. Yeah. Intentional is a really good way of putting it. Yeah. Yeah. So, all right, let's get into the gothic hair metal then. (laughs) (laughs) And start with uh, the track opener, track one, title track, one second. This is a great example of a song that the first time I heard it, I was like, no. (laughs) And then the fifth time I heard it, I was like, hmm. It's like that kombucha uh, girl meme, right? Where she's like, hmm, no, maybe, maybe, yes, no, maybe. Yeah, that's where, so where I ended on this song is like, yeah, it's catchy. I do like it. Um, Which is funny because it doesn't have a chorus. I know, but the whole, like, <laughs> one second, oh, like, yeah. the, just the delivery, like, you talked about cadence and, like, that kind of stuff, like, just the delivery of that line over and over again, I think, and the music building around that concept, it feels like a, it feels like the concept of the song and that line are perfectly in sync that right. the whole song is built around it you know what i mean even though it's it gets very repetitive and like i just feel like it's it's the execution of one idea extremely like i don't know almost perfectly yeah done extremely well absolutely yep it's mm-hmm. yeah i mean like i said it doesn't have a chorus as such it doesn't even change chords or melody all that much it doesn't really have a bridge it's it is a sort of a, a one note song almost, and yet, like you said, it's really catchy, and it is kind of a classic. Uh, and I think that you know I've talked about this many times before. It shows the power of dynamics to create a great song. You know, when you don't need to fly all over the scales and use every note in the book. Um, if what you can do instead is build, and you know, have the rise and fall, and the cr- the build to a crest and the crash. And then the come down and all, if you can have all of that in a song, then that can be enough if your concept is good enough. Um, I mean, the, the, I was just going to say the intro as well, starting, so starting with a piano, they'd already done that on Draconian Times. So that wasn't unusual by this point. But the fact that, you know, starting with a piano and then having a big crash had become a thing that Paradise Lost did. By that point, they'd done it on several songs. Like I say, it opened their, to this point, most successful album. Um, But 
the fact that when the crash comes in, it is uh, largely synths yes. rather than guitars. That is yep. the big difference, and that is what signaled. I remember listening to this the first time and going, "Oh, yeah!" I was like, "Wait, what? What? Yeah." <laughs> Like, this is not what I expected. Because uh, you, you hear those p- the piano and you think, here comes the crash. And you expect yeah. this, burr, you know, big It's guitars. less like a crash and more like a washing over you. Yeah, I guess. Sort of thing. Yeah. And which I think, it, it, to your expectations, is a contrast. Totally. Yeah. 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 Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, you're right. The, the lyrics and everything in the title all just sort of seem to mesh perfectly well again you know talking about the quality of nick's lyrics and stuff you know he was he's really good at building uh, a concept in that way and i think this absolutely does it um i mean just that line and for one second my life was in your hands that's a that's a good line there's a lot of good lines well definitely from a storytelling standpoint too like that and for one second right like that that starting a line yeah is you want to know what comes after that, right? What happened in that one second. And so I do think like, this is an example, I think where like from a lyrical standpoint and things like that, I think it is. um, And I don't feel like this song is particularly like cheesy. Uh, So yeah, like all those things were the things that sort of grew on me. I do feel like, and this is probably cringy for you, but like, I wouldn't mind seeing a guitar solo in this song. (laughs) Like not, not necessarily you know, something over the top, but I feel like with the mood that they were setting in the atmosphere, like you could have, and it gets kind of like towards the end of the song, I wouldn't say guitar solo. There's, there's like, there's adornments of, you know, guitar as we sort of get towards the end of the song, but there's that break at like a minute and 40 where I feel like, I don't know. Like to me, but again, like to your point about like what fans were expecting from this song, I think that's a good example of like that would be where I would expect there to be some sort of um even small guitar solo, right? Yeah, and there absolutely is not. Yeah, the closest right. you get is uh, as you say towards the end. Uh, yeah, and they're just basically right like, in the like the last thirty seconds. There's some you know high pitched guitar harmonics, yeah, right? Yeah. Like, but at the during at the break, they're kind of like, "What if we just had you think about what you heard <laughs> to this point, and then we're going to do it all over again? What about that instead?" Yeah, pretty and much. Like, okay, um, <laughs> all right. <laughs> go, go sit in the corner and think. Yeah, <laughs> about what you, you know. Just what? You're not going to yeah. get a guitar solo. I'd just like you to sit here and reflect on the first minute and forty seconds of this song. Um, and if you forget what it was like, we're going to do it again. Yeah. After you've had it, your time out, but it works. It does it, work. As again, now you can see why I was slightly pissed off. Yeah, right. Because I'm like the the literal song puts me in time out. Here I am listening to it again. What am I doing here? And yep, now I'm starting to like it. And <laughs> here we go. Uh, yeah, yeah, the power of Paradise Lost compels you. Right. <laughs> All right, let's move on to track two. Say just words. Keep your foul mind drink, you're trying it for. 
I mean, this feels like the radio hit, right? This is, I mean, in contrast to the first song. So this is, I mentioned this before on Icon, by now this had become a standard Paradise Lost tradition, which is you open with something a bit epic sounding and then you put your catchiest song as track two on the album. Like every you know, the, the previous two, maybe three albums had all done this and they also then continued to do it for the next few albums as well. Uh, it's absolutely just a staple of their, you know, track listing. Um, and this is catchy. God damn, this one's catchy. This is a I mean, this staple. Is, this is the prototype for gothic hair metal. I mean, well, this is it. it. It was a single as well. and, and there yeah, is... but, I, but like, it is exactly it, right? Like, it's got, you've got your tears, you've got your sadness, you've got your, <laughs> your depressiveness and all this kind of stuff, but you also have like great riff. But it's one of the most guitar led songs on the album. Yeah. And just like the, the cadence again, I think that was a great point out, a call out by you up front, but just like the way that it almost like before it kind of explodes into the, chorus elements of just like almost like a rushed delivery of like sages words to me like that sort of part of the song you know yeah yeah i, I, I really i really like it. i love the this is arguably it's definitely one of my favorite songs on the album and i think it's just it's just a super tight well crafted song yeah i mean it is a classic and like i say it's a live staple they still play this live to this oh, day I'm sure uh yeah. you know for a reason because yeah it is a really really great song um yeah nick has talked i mean you know he's this this is what annoys me so much like he gets so overlooked it's so unfair <laughs> um yeah, he doesn't get asked this stuff all that often but when he has been asked about it he has talked about what to him is the importance of not just having sort of I don't know, clever lyrics, but having lyrics and phrasing that feel right with the music and with the rhythm, uh, rather than, you know, like, yeah, being sort of clever or even grammatically correct. Like that line that you're talking about that leads into the chorus is, and uh, it's got the internal rhymes as well, which he does a lot. Um, and it's, you know, cause you presume the winner is you, but that's yeah, not true. Yeah, totally. That's it, really good. Right. And and that's, if you read that as a line, that is terrible English. <laughs> but, but it works really But as a well. lyric, it works fucking yeah. great. Yeah, exactly. And yeah, he, totally and, agree. Again, he's um, really good at that. They do the whole um, go sit in the corner thing from about two minutes and 50 seconds to about three minutes and 30 seconds yeah. in this song as well, <laughs> which I now just realized, as I said, that is the goth hair metal version of a guitar solo. It is the absence <laughs> of a guitar solo, <laughs> but leaving a space in the song for what would have been a guitar solo. Like it is truly, it's almost genius um they then they do they do it a fair amount on this album as well and like um, i say on the next album even more so yeah yeah instead of a guitar solo you get a timeout that what is more goth hair metal than that right (laughs) and so but they do it again but it it works within this song you know like this again like this song is four minutes long and it's just well done yeah. Like this is this is a thing that would make me come back to this album and it's definitely something that um this song did not have to grow on me. I was right. I was there from the get go. I want to call out the drums again in this track as well. This is one of those tracks where the like there's nothing special here in terms of, you know, any competent drummer could play this this drum line. 
No question. No, it's it doesn't take a huge amount of, uh, you know, skill or anything. It's not fancy, but the way it's played, there is effortless power. Is is probably the best way I can try to describe it. I think behind in the drums of this song, they are so they he hits so hard and they are so powerful and they drive the song forward and yet without showing off and without being you know sort of like turned up to 11 volume or anything right they're just it's so well done uh i also want to say if you want a good laugh <laughs> go and watch the video to this song because <laughs> It is. Paradise Lost have never made great videos. They, they have maybe like three great videos in their entire catalogue, to be honest with you. Most of them are not all that good. Partly that's because they're clearly not comfortable in videos. Um, but the, this vid- the video for this one is Nick on his own in a bare room, like miming to the camera. And it is bad. It's like it's one of those I mean, videos. That sounds perfect. It's one of those videos that at the time we thought was really cool. Yep. But then you, you look back a few years later and like, oh, oh no. <laughs> it's just yeah, it's really cringeworthy. So yeah, have a good laugh. Find that on YouTube. That's awesome. <laughs> but yeah, love love this song. Great song. Yeah, like I said, it's you know track two is the catchiest song. That's the Paradise Lost way. It always is. All right, so let's move on from this then to track three. And that is, I mentioned it earlier, Lydia. takes a little while to get going yeah about 40 seconds or so yeah it definitely has that sort of atmospheric build-up doesn't it um at the, at the start i'd say the thing more than anything that i what i love about this track is its dissonance like it does lull you in at first with a bit of melody but then it just goes bah. <laughs> <laughs> yes uh, and those high-pitched guitar harmonics as well. It is really dissonant and, like, not an easy track to listen to at first. This is why I'm, I was a little surprised why I called this one out when we were saying earlier. Like, this track to me is not r- the least bit radio-friendly. I mean, the lyrics side and the lyrics, my God, the lyrics are anything but radio-friendly. But even musically, I would I'd never expect to hear this on the radio. Yeah, I mean, talk about... Like, I, I guess, depending on what you take away to be the meaning of the song, like, this song certainly seems to be, to me, about someone who's not happy with their current profession. Oh, I mean, it's about prostitution. I don't think there's yeah. any question about that, yeah. Um, and it definitely is one of the more atmospheric songs on the album. I kind of felt a little Alice in Chains vibe on this one. 
Oh, interesting. I know that they were, Nick in particular, you know, was an Alice in Chains fan. Um, in fact, he, when he cut his hair, he said that he was partly inspired by Lane Staley. You know, yeah. when he cut his hair and had that sort of like short, little bit spiky do. Uh, yeah, Nick said that he kind of saw that and went, hmm, mm, that looks like a good idea. Save getting it in my mouth during gigs all the time, you know. <laughs> right. Yeah, I mean, I don't know that they go full grungy on any of the songs on you, but I definitely felt like there was some elements of grunge for sure. Definitely like alt rock and grunge, I felt like there were elements of. And this song in particular gave me a little... Maybe just because of the atmosphere and kind of the mournful, you know, kind of tone of the vocals and stuff like that, it definitely gave me a little bit. And I think dissonance, right? Which I think when you talk about Alice in Chains, like that definitely feels like mm, that's true. Was one of their, you know, um, part of the tools. signature sound. Yeah, yeah, totally, absolutely. Yeah, and I mean, yeah, those lyrics. All lowest forms of life are pounding you inside. That is just brutal. Man. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, holy shit. Uh, it's raw and brutal. I love it. Um, but yeah, this is one where, I mean, the, the guitars are in it, uh, but not, and they do, they do drive it, but it's not a riff in the sense that you would normally think of it. Um, right. You know, and the, yes, I'm talking again about the, the lack here. Just imagine a guitar solo here. Um you've actually all you've got instead is a sort of extended feedback howl in the middle eight and then again at the end that's all it is is just like howling feedback <laughs> there's your guitar solo <laughs> well and again like the song is three and a half minutes long and the first 40 seconds you know are the build-up and so that's true it doesn't then this song definitely doesn't overstate and i feel like for like a slower tempo atmospheric song like I, I think less is more around that. So I, I think like that, it, it definitely works together on this one. Mm. The uh, the outro, by the way, where you've got the woman's voice doing a sort of spoken word thing and it's really distorted and, you, you know, buried in the mix. You can't really hear what she's saying. That was done by an operatic singer that the band had worked with before on previous huh. albums where she'd actually done like operatic back, backing vocals. And for some reason they decided to get her in again, not to sing this time, but to do this spoken word thing. I don't know if she lived locally or what. <laughs> Such a strange Interesting. choice. Interesting. Yeah. It's like, yeah, come in here with your beautiful voice and don't use it. <laughs> <laughs> right. Exactly. Just talk. Yeah. Yeah. It's very, very strange. Again, we're going to do the opposite of what people would expect that exactly you would do. Yeah. yeah. But I, th this is one of my favorite tracks on the album, honestly. And that is just because it is so, it's like an anti song in some ways, you know, it's like, again, there's no chorus really. Uh, the, the guitar riff is not a riff that it's, loads of feedback and distorted vocals yeah. you know dominate the soundscape it is like, like i say it's kind of an anti-song but it is still catchy and it does still work and that's why well, i love it and now in terms of catchiness they're sort of three for three right and so but this song is a quite a contrast to sage's words oh totally yeah and so yeah like placement wise i think it works yeah yeah well let's move on to track four then uh, which I think, personally, is also really catchy, and that is Mercy. You live for times of solace Within a 
it's the way he i i agree with you and i think it's again because of the vocals yeah just the way he you know delivers it's mercy you're asking for yeah the way that he delivers and says mercy and sings you know mercy i think is really is the hook it is for sure yeah yeah and that whole like you know um cheating life or taking more yeah, or, or or actually take my life or give me more is is I think my favorite line of those of that right. couplet. Um, but also the, I I think his performance on the verse in this is great. Like this track to me is menacing. Well, and you know what's I, I don't know how accurate this is or not, but like one note I made is like this kind of reminds me of what I thought Paradise Lost sounded like. Okay, so. For whatever reason, it it felt right to me when I was listening to it, based on like again my limited experience with the band. Like I I felt like this, um, and I think just because of the vibe of it. Well, and again, like vocally, it's really well done. Well, that's really interesting, actually, because so apparently this song was originally when they first wrote it and took it into the studio. It was twice the speed. Uh, it was hmm. a really fast, sort of almost like punky track. Um, Interesting. But they were worried, <laughs> lol, they were worried that it was too upbeat. <laughs> um, I mean, on brand, right? <laughs> and so the producer, Sank, who I mentioned earlier, he suggested slowing it down massively huh. like this to get and, and stripping a lot of things away to get this final track. But that's funny that... Like I say, they basically, they felt that it sounded too much like their previous stuff and so slowed it down and it, it doesn't, but it is still unmistakably them. But it's still retained. Right. Yeah, And exactly. so that's really funny. If yeah. you, of all the tracks, you were the, you know, this was one where you were like, oh, this actually does sound more like what I'd expect from them. That's funny. Um, lyrically, I, I mean, I think it's great, but I always assumed that this one was about being a musician. Like and Nick's lyrics are notoriously difficult to actually put, mm-hmm. you know. Apart, I mean, Lydia is fairly obvious. The last track that we just talked about, but most of the tracks on this album and most of Paradise Lost tracks in general, it's really difficult to actually pin down what he's talking about. And that's deliberate. He has talked about that and said, like, you know, he doesn't like to be literal, uh, and he, you know, deliberately obfuscates what he's talking about with a bit of wordplay or by using metaphor and simile and stuff like that. Um, but I always assumed that this one was about being a musician and how it kind of 
how the life slowly kills you, but you also can't give it up. Um, there's that law, that line could trade your soul for that normal life. Well, and just going back to the whole thing that you talked about, right? Of like the, the whole thing about them being burnt out, right? In the call of the road and the, you know, it's a, it, it never, you're always having to continue to sort of march forward in order to do this, but you do it because you love it, but also like it grinds you down into nothing. Exactly. Yeah. I think if there's one song on this album that actually is talking about them as a band, it's this. And again, I could be completely wrong because, you know, Nick is infuriatingly uh, obscure at times. <laughs> right. Um, but yeah, and musically, it's great. I mean, like you say, Nick, Nick does carry this track a lot. Uh, with his vocals, and especially, as you say, in the in what passes for a chorus when he sings It's Mercy You're Asking For. Um, really, really powerful there. But also musically, it is pretty great as well. It, you know, it bobs along. It's got a good groove. Um, and groove is not something that's always associated with Paradise Lost, but they were right. definitely finding it on a few tracks on this album. Uh, the next track does not have much groove, but it certainly does have power. That is track five, Soul Courageous. Yeah, definitely feels almost like a little more punkish in some ways to me. But um, again, I feel like not that not that Mercy and Lydia were similar songs, but I feel like picking it back up after a bit of a breather again feels right in terms of the way that they structured the album. Yeah, for sure. After a couple of massive downers, basically, now we get something a bit more not exactly uplifting <laughs> but so well, right i mean it's all a downer but just like tempo wise and stuff like that for sure yeah yeah it's still dark but it is up tempo right. it's also the shortest track on the album it's only three minutes long um i remember oh yeah 301 yeah i didn't even notice that yeah okay really short i remember people fucking hated this track when it first came out when this album came out because i think this might have been a single i'm not sure but it certainly got played and i remember people fucking hating it because it is such a relatively straight ahead rock song certainly for i mean them. it almost felt a little u2-ish well right and you then you've got nick going doing that oh into the chorus right yeah. which i don't think he'd ever done before and this was a real i remember people literally going well that fuck it they've sold out you know but that's what i'm talking about dude is like doesn't that track with the idea of like they're doing an album 
they're doing other people's music no. in some uh, like I don't think so. I, I genuinely don't. And that's not just me defending it. I genuinely don't. Everything I've, I mean, I didn't get that impression anyway from like when I first heard the album. But everything I've read and heard them talk about when this phase of their career was that they just wanted to expand. Yeah. And I'm not saying because they like ran out of ideas or anything like that, or they were trying to be like, well, let's sound like you two on this. Let's put a couple elements of you two in the song. But it's like, it's almost like in deliberately trying to be the thing that people don't expect them to be. You know what I mean? Oh, you mean like contrariness? No, I don't think, again, I don't think so. I think it is one of the things that they've always, and they've, I mean, who knows, maybe it's all PR, but they have consistently said this throughout their whole career, is that they make the album that they want to make at that point in time. And if other people like it, that's great, but they don't think about what people expect of them uh, when they're writing songs and recording, that they, they, just, like, they just make what they're excited about and what they mm-hmm. want to record. Um, and I like mean, which say, ultim- ultimately is exactly what they should be doing. Right, sure. I mean, and that's why, like I say, it's one of the reasons I like them so much. You know, they have had commercial downers as a result. They have absolutely, if they had just made another Draconian Times instead of this, but may- it reminds me maybe a they could have bit- been like a stadium level band. Maybe they could have been a massive, huge, you know, uh, not maybe not Metallica level, but a huge arena stroke stadium metal band. But they didn't want to, so they didn't. And I really respect that. It almost reminds me of the Faith No More album that we did, right? Of them being like kind of like the fans could even interpret it as somewhat of an fu, right? Of like the fans that have followed it, followed them to this point and are expecting, not even expecting, wanting, you know, whatever they wanted the next album from this band to be. And it seems like it wasn't this. (laughs) This isn't what they were. This is not what they were hoping for, uh, for that. It might have grown on them, but this is not what they were kind of hoping for. And in some ways it feels almost contrarian to but to your point, like if it, it maybe it just was the music that they were feeling at the time and they wanted to do. But. Yeah, it's it's funny because this actually was a really successful album for them. Like if you just go by sales, this was actually their most successful album until well, the re-release of Draconian Times in uh, 2011. I think it was up until that point. This was their most successful album, it, you know, charted quite high in several European countries. But if you just listened to the press. I mean, it did turn off some fans. No question. They did lose some longtime fans. Yeah, but that's album. like, wasn't wasn't the Black Album Metallica's most uh, successful album? Yes, exactly. And had the right. same thing. And that album off. was not yeah. for hardcore Metallica fans. That album was for everyone. Yeah. And that's what I feel like this thing. You know what I mean? Like, it's them graduating from the audience that they've cultivated to this point yeah. to being something more mainstream. But there is also... Like, uh, a couple of years ago, I read, I think it's on Wikipedia, in fact, that um, Metal Hammer voted this one of the best 20 metal albums of the year. I read that, too, and I was like, it was like that, uh, I think you should leave meme. You sure about that? (laughs) Are you sure about that? (laughs) Well, obviously, I'd agree. But yeah, I think, you know, retrospectively, people have gone back and gone, actually, this was a fucking great album. Uh, It just got, it did get a fair amount of, not hate, but more sort of disdain at the time. I think because it was in combination with them cutting their hair and stuff, people were like, really? 
you know. And they did get accused of being sellouts and stuff, even though, as I say, they have always, right through their career, said, like, no, we just do what we want to do. But I also feel like you, as someone who absolutely, le- like, you sound like me when I'm defending Megadeth, too, in a bit, <laughs> of just like, no, 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 seriously, though, this was them trying to do this. And it's like, again, like, you sure about that? Or, like, obviously, that is the way that they would want to package this as well, right? It's like, no, this is exactly the music we were feeling at the time, and this is all this kind of stuff, and we kind of do what we want. And, like, they're they're going to they're going to have that story be whatever they need it to be to fit like why they made this album and, and that kind of stuff. And so, sure. And, um, and that could all be true, but all I'm saying is like, it could also be a bunch of bullshit. Yeah. And that's why I said, you know, maybe it's all PR, but they have been at least consistent throughout their whole career. They've always said that, you know, there's never been any sort of chink in the armor as it were. I have to ask about this track. Do you know what light your pilot means? Cause that to me is a very British phrase. Well, no, I mean, just in the literal sense, obviously, like in terms of the uh, the stove or the, or your burner. Oh, okay. You do call them a pilot light. Right. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. For like a gas stove yeah. or for like your furnace. Um, okay. I wasn't sure if, to if light the, the burner. I wasn't sure if that were, if they were called that in the US. I always wondered, like, does that mean anything to <laughs> non-Brit people? <laughs> yeah. Um, musically, I want to do, do we want to point out that the end of the chorus here uh, when he's singing You Bring Me to the Ground, is a great example of their signature sound as well, where Greg is playing a single note while Aaron mm-hmm. plays a few chords in the background. But again, it's really powerful. It's not musically complex, but it works, you know? And it can, when done right, yeah, it can be really powerful. Um, yeah, just great songwriting. So this was the song that pissed off a lot of people, though? Oh, yeah. Yeah, it really mm. did. Yeah. Oh, uh, Interesting. Again, uh, I'll just point out one of my favorite lyrics. Spirit maketh man always at hand, but spirit fails to save the ones worth waiting for. Oof. I mean, that's a downer. <laughs> All right. You're turning me around on some of these lyrics. Um. All right. Well, I'll, I'll uh, before I talk you down from it, then I'll, uh, I'll take that victory and we'll quickly move on. <laughs> <laughs> to, track, <laughs> to track six, and that is another day. This one I kind of th- thought had a little bit of a Soundgarden vibe to it. Um, and I definitely, like, I like A Summer's Day, My Bullet Runs Cold. You will never hear me calling as I'm reaching to destroy you. Yeah. That's pretty. Yeah. That's a, that's a, that's a hard-hitting line. Yeah. 
But that's what I say. He's good, man. He's fucking good. Uh, yeah. This is one of those where, like, is it overlooked? I don't know, but I hardly ever hear anybody talk about it, which I think is a shame because this, again, great track. Uh, but again, like this, the long build, right, to really kick in. True. As a song. And I think that feels to me like, at least on this album, it's part of their signature sound is like the build to, although on Icon, I feel like they punched you right in the face. Uh, there were maybe, I think, two tracks on Icon that did that and the rest of the album. Yeah, absolutely. They just went straight in. Yeah. Um, but definitely here, I feel like multiple times we're, we're, we're really easing into the song and then it kind of kicks in. And that's kind of one of the things overall is like, even when they kick in, it's not kick in like with like crushingly heavy. It's just kick in like on the one song we talked about already where it kind of washes over you. And then even when the guitars come in heavy, it's not like super heavy. Mm, true. Yeah, all, all true. But the, the when the crash does happen, as you say, it's more like a sort of sweeping wave than a crash, but it's effective. Still, uh, I was just going to yeah. say, still effective. Yeah. So much of the verse in this is carried by the bass as well. Um, this is, you know, this album really showcases what a great bassist Steve Edmondson had become. Again, because like I said, when they started out, they were all school kids. None of them could play their instruments all that well. And that's very apparent on their first album, yep. <laughs> first couple of albums, really. Um, but they all rapidly got better to the point where Steve Edmondson, I mean, these days, he's a fucking great bassist. But even at this time, you know, which is still in a relatively early part of their career, you could tell that he was becoming a really, really good bassist again not the fastest bassist in the world or anything like that you know he's not going to be playing flight of the bumblebee like joey DeMaio or anything like that but just in terms of how he plays it and the 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 sort of the notes he chooses and the the rhythm and the taste that he brings to it um i think is really really stands out on a lot of this album especially on this track mm -hmm. the drums as well this is another one where Again, nobody else would play this the way that Lee Morris does. They've got those open hi-hat accents and a sort of playful ride bit during the chorus that just, yeah, you know, nobody else would play it like that. Um, as I say, I really like this one. You've got that, the outro solo coda as well, which is another staple of theirs. It's just a really well-put-together song, and yet, like I say, I almost hardly ever hear people talk about it. Yeah, I mean, I didn't have it highlighted as one of my favourite on the album, but I, I don't I honestly think there's a song I dislike on this album. I'm just looking through my notes. Yeah, I don't really... There's nothing I don't like on the album. But this one didn't pop for me. Right, sure. Yeah, fair enough. Uh, I'll be really interested to hear what you think about the next track then, so let's go on to track seven, The Sufferer. Never would receive 
This one had a, like a Stone Temple vi- Pilots vibe to me. Again, I think I was just at a point in the album where I was like thinking like contemporaries. Yeah, yeah. a little bit of grungy kind of, you know, gritty vibe to it. Um kind of catchy. Uh the lyric I pulled was uh and it might have just because I I think it's I think this one felt a little bit cheesy like uh elate the tears i create how completely inane because all my pride is gone uh before that like a time when i'm all alone and i'm breathing afraid because all my pride is gone like i i think it works melodically how he's saying it but also it to me felt like a bit of a jumble as far as <laughs> lyrically goes i will say that elate the tears i create is probably the mo the, the furthest reach on this album, it's one of Nick's biggest reaches. It's a lyric that stands out for sure, because you're like, really? <laughs> I like that you're so familiar with the lyrics that you're like, it's one of his biggest reaches on the album. Like, you've graded all of the, you know, of like, no, nah, that's not much of a reach. No, that's perfect to know that. This one, a little bit of a stretch. Like, you've annotated all of the pretty much of the lyrics mentally yeah but this one is a bit of a stretch yeah i mean it's yeah elate the tears i create but you've got that internal rhyme again like i say he does that a lot you know uh just so that you've got the the rhyming sound within it he does it again in the uh one of the later lines when he does collapse at my sorry stance but i need to surpass he would collapse and surpass and so it's not just the rhymes but the reuse of consonants as well so that things sound similar even if they don't exactly rhyme it feels almost inevitable if you like and he's really good at that uh well, e- and even like though as you say when you read them as a the line same, like because all my pride is gone right like bringing people yeah. back to it's like having that one I- core idea per song and like yeah. bringing people back to it yeah right and so in some ways it's almost like the stuff around it doesn't even matter as much because you we're coming back to this one thing like you're what you're going to take away from it because all my pride is gone yeah right right yeah and so it's like the other stuff uh if if it fits great if it doesn't fit great if it's a little bit of a stretch if it's not whatever like the thing you're going to take away is because all my pride is gone yeah it's kind of acdc like yeah well that's that's where again like in terms of like growing on me over time is like the simplicity or the yeah i i think simplicity but not like in a bad way but just like like the you know no frills approach to some of these songs much like acdc gets you know um people can be reductive about their music right in the in the simplicity of it but like the more time you spend with it you're seeing that a, it's more complex than people give it credit for at first listen, and then B, it's the, you know, it's the flawless execution of a particular concept. Right. Right. Well, and you, we talked about this when we did the ACDC album. You've got nowhere to hide. You right. Know, when, when you write a song so simple, you've got nowhere to hide. It'd better be fucking good because you can't well, you can't disguise it with you know trickery and uh, complexity and you know fast playing or anything like right. that it would just better You're be not going to confuse anybody in the in that but also like it's also where you start to really appreciate the nuances of a particular musician and what they're doing with their instrument and that's like yes. you talked about the drums here right it's where you like again when you listen to it multiple times is it really as simple as you thought that it was or like why did they make this simple choice and how does that work with the rest of what's happening in this song and or or not in a particular thing and so yeah um 
so in that way, like I do like a lot of what their approach is on this album because it is that sort of cutting off all the frills and being really focused on delivering an idea per song, yeah. you know? Yeah. I also, however, I, as a, you know, as a metaler, the crunch on the guitars going into the mid late here. Oh, <laughs> well, and I think that's I why I evoked that. stone temple pilots for me, because I always felt like their sound in particular had this raw element to it. Just in mm. the, particularly the guitars just had this really raw element to it that felt uniquely them to me. Yeah. Yeah. It's very, very crunchy and, and heavy just for a moment, <laughs> just for a moment. Uh, so let's move on to track eight, This Cold Life. another one that has like a long build like we're seeing yep. the pattern yep. i feel like uh this my note on this one is this was the one where i was like like a heavier come undone from duran duran <laughs> a lot of repeating over and over you're right well and especially the end yeah the last like 30 40 seconds are literally just a repeating musical motif and nick barely even singing really this which cold is life. very hair yeah. metal i might put out there again <laughs> It's like really identifying the riff and then like riding that all the way through. Well, but the fu- the funny thing is that he doesn't say the words this cold life until that moment. Like it's not in anywhere in the lyrics until basically the song is done and it's like, right, okay, now let's, you know, repeat this riff to the end. And then he just repeats this cold life over and over and over, um, which again feels like a very contrary thing to do, I suppose. Um, well, it's just what they're going for on this album. Yeah, I, I do love the the line, I never needed foes forever feeling low because they break me down. Cannot fake this frown. Oh, I just, that is so gothic. <laughs> <laughs> that is so gothic. That's my favorite quote of yeah. this. But well, also, because yeah. uh, this only came out a few months ago, I realize now that to Americans that probably hits quite different because what you call a frown is completely different to what we call a frown. Uh, so, and it has different connotations, I think, of what is meant by a frown. So, yeah, that's kind of, that's one that probably didn't travel so well across the, <laughs> across the pond. Because it's all in the eyebrows, you see, for us. All in the eyebrows. No mouth movement. 
No mouth mum. Okay. Yeah. All right. All eyebrows. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I like this track. There isn't a lot to say about it, really. It is, as you say, it's no. another one that, you know, builds up in layers and then, uh, you know, it has a quiet bit and then a loud chorus and stuff. I think it's good, but yeah, there's not a lot to say about it, really. Well, and I think we're starting to now get into the question of, like, if we're including the 13th track, like, did this album need to be 13 tracks right. long? Could they have lost one or two tracks? And mm. yeah, I mean, like I said, I love this album and I love every track on it, but even I would say, actually, they probably could have lost one or two and I don't think the album would have suffered too much for it. Right. Um, <laughs> okay, and speaking of, so let's move on to track nine, Blood of Another. This is the typo negative song, right? On the album? Yeah, kind of. Kind of. And they were they were friends with typo negative. Like Paradise Lost and Typo Negative, I'm not sure if they ever played together, but they certainly were at the same festivals and stuff, and they're on record as having been friends. Um, now, to me, like there, there's two things I feel about this song. Number one, uh, one of the best songs on the album. Number two, should have ended at two minutes and 40 seconds. Oh, wow. Okay, that is fascinating. So, yeah, I mean, I love the bells on this, <laughs> which just, that is, that is, that's the one element Well, that of is cheese. the typo, like, that's yeah. where I feel like they're, this, this song is super cheese. Yeah. Um, it also has the only example, I'm pretty sure the only example on this album of a pick slide. Uh, yes. Which is funny because... Which is the only reason that that second part of the song is justified in in its existence in my mind because of the pick because slide. <laughs> that is a kick ass and a heavy that pick slide is one of the heaviest things on this album well here's the funny thing is they used to do them all the time like you go back Dude, and, i love a pick slide. i mentioned this when we talked about icon like almost every song in that on the album has got a pick slide or five on it they used to do them all the time and then on this album there's one <laughs> But I'll tell you what. But it's great. It's, it is a chef's kiss of a pick slide. It certainly it's is. It's like exactly, it's the perfect amount of time that a pick slide should be. It is done with the exact amount of weight that it should be done with for the heaviness that comes after. And the crash after it is one of the heavier parts of the whole album as well. And so I say that it should have ended at 240, but I do like the way that it comes back in. Yeah. 
yeah. but it is just them repeating everything it over is, and over yeah. again. But yeah, they were very practiced at pick slides by, <laughs> by this, this point. Is a, this is a top-notch <laughs> pick slide for sure. Um, it, it's funny that you say this is one of your favorite tracks because this is another one that a lot of people really fucking hated. Uh, but I bet they love it now. Well, I, you know, it's another great live track for sure. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, but also part of the reason that it got stick from a lot of people and not just sort of, you know, longtime fans, but, you know, people, because as I say, at this time, they were quite prominent in the British music scene, a uh, British metal scene at any rate. So even people who weren't big fans would hear Paradise Lost songs was the lyrics. Uh, like they really got accused of DJ just being cheesy. Uh, with these oh, it's lyrics. super cheesy. Th- these are the closest to cheese lyrics, I think, on the album, for sure. You know, you'll see the blood as we roll in it together. Um, it is definitely, yeah. <laughs> I do like the line, death is not selective. The darker shroud will fall on all despite. Oh, yes. That's a good line. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it's the goth again. Not without cheese, yeah. <laughs> but it is a good line. Yeah. There's Musically as well, one thing I like about this is you've got so in the, again, the middle eight where there is no solo, you know, imagine your own guitar solo here. Um, yep. What you have got instead is a sort of male choir sound. Very, you know, sort of, you can hear them. They're not loud, but you can mm-hmm. hear them. But you can also hear that in the background during the verses. It is really subtle. But if you know this album as well as I do, <laughs> then you can hear it. In the, in the background of the verses, that choir is still going again, which, again, just points to this whole... There's a, cert, there's a certain amount of tongue-in-cheek with this track, I think, and that, like you said, it does you know bring out the comparisons to Typo Negative. They are not entirely serious on this. Well, and just the way he's singing it, too, is in a very dramatic um, you know, voice, I think, as well. Yeah, oh, I mean, although, you know, he does... That is kind of his style. <laughs> he you know well it's his yes although his style seemingly has changed over yes yes times well, too, and he know? varies it he does vary it quite a bit on this album this was the album where he started taking singing lessons and i think you can tell um but you know yeah one one of his preferred styles of delivery is that very dramatic deep voiced style yeah. um but yeah like i said great track uh, great track sim- yep, simple agreed. but effective uh and like i said they still do i don't think they play it a lot live but i've definitely heard them play it live you know even in recent years oh yeah i feel like this is another like if they were playing live especially at like a festival like even the people who don't know their whole discography like would this could get the crowd moving yeah they would get they would get bumped into the yeah, song for sure sure but as far as i'm concerned this track's existence is merely a setup for track 10 disappear
I'm going to need you to tell me what you love about this song. <sighs> Everything. Every, you know that gif of Gary Oldman? Everything. <laughs> this is where our musical tastes diverge. In, as far as I'm concerned, this is one of the greatest songs in rock history. I fucking love this song. I love everything about it. It has a great intro. It has that weird processing on Nick's vocals, which is just mm-hmm. so unusual. And then that chorus, that big epic chorus with the big deep voice delivery that we just talked about nick's voice sounds amazing uh it is such a great song to sing along to you've got the alliteration of constant commotion which just sounds great but then and all of that's great and i really do love it but then you get the piece de resistance or coup de grace maybe i should say the the final uh what is it one minute and 27 seconds of coda which is just huge and somehow makes 87 seconds feel like the director's cut of Lord of the Rings. It's this epic journey with everybody at the top of their game. Like whenever I write a sort of epic coda in one of my instrumental pieces, this is always what I'm chasing and I've never achieved it and I'm, I probably never will, but it is this coda that I'm always chasing. It is four minutes long, one of the shorter tracks on the album, and yet it feels huge. It taught me so much about songwriting. I just, I love this track to bits. I love that you love this song. <laughs> I really do. I, I honestly really do because it makes me feel better about when you and I truly like don't hear the same thing with a song and I'm like completely love and appreciate every nuance of this thing. And it doesn't resonate the same way with you. And I'm speaking of you and I, but speaking of like our, everyone who listens to this and everybody who listens to music in general, um, because it just doesn't have that effect on me. This song doesn't, but the fact that it does for you is freaking awesome. Like for me, the I feel like the bite of this song doesn't bite hard enough. And so it's not I feel like it's not enough of a contrast for me to really resonate with me. So it so it leaves me feeling underwhelmed by the whole thing because I don't feel like the contrast is strong enough. Oh man. Now, v- so it doesn't work together the way that I feel like it would need to, to really make me feel as emotionally impacted by it as you do. Yeah. Well, yeah, vive la différence. Uh, yeah, and all totally. That. Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, I agree with you on that score for sure. It's, you know, I, I know that there are tracks that you love that don't do anything for me and, and vice versa. Yeah. But this clearly is, is one of them. Yeah. The, the strings, I mean, they're not real strings. I think all of the strings on this. I actually are. noted that I'm like, it's got this, are those strings yeah, no. but it has this very sort of sweeping dramatic yeah uh, orchestral uh, I think, vibe i think for the sure. strings on this track are some of greg's best string compositions like i say i'm pretty sure they're all synths i don't think there are any uh-huh. real strings on this album um but it is all greg you know yeah playing keyboards um and i think, i mean and the fact that it even draws it into question i think is speaks highly of true. what he's been able to do with it true for sure yeah but i think his use of the strings 
uh, or the string sounds, whatever, however you want to call it, on this particular track are just fantastic. Yeah, like really, really well composed. They suit the track. They complement it. They drive parts of it, but then not others. They kind of slowly take over the coda. As the coda goes along, the guitars go down in the mix and the strings come up as the strings get more and more like urgent, uh, mm-hmm. which is all of part of what lends to giving it that epic feel to me. So, yeah, as I say, there's... I would change nothing about this track. <laughs> I absolutely love it. And my final note on this was, you could totally cut this song. <laughs> <laughs> uh, oh, that's oh, that, that's interesting because I kind of feel the same way about the next track. Uh, obviously not this one, but yeah, I kind of feel a little bit way about the next track. If I was going to cut anything, uh, one of them would be track 11, which is Sane. To me, the problem I have with this song is that it starts heavy and then like tones it down. And then doesn't continue. Yeah. Yep. And that's where I feel like the promise of where I thought we were going. You know, and again, we've talked several times on this album about how like defying expectations, right? Doing something different than you might expect that they're going to do in this. But like, here's a place where like that did not work for me. The chorus is still pretty heavy, though. I mean, you've got to give it that, you know, that sort of... It is, and I also feel like this is another song where the drums feel super heavy. Yes. Um, And just the way that he's hitting those drums, like, it almost reminded me a little bit of um, uh, Vinny Apice, who plays uh, with the thick end of the stick. Right. Because it just hits harder. And, like, the, I feel like you feel the drums on this song. Yeah, you do. Uh, this is another one for sure. This and the bass, the drums and the bass on this song actually are both great. Again, Steve Edmondson's bass on this track is fantastic and carries a lot of the chorus. Um, and it kind of explodes into the chorus too, which I think... So there are definitely things that I like about this song. But yeah, the the starting out with that with that heaviness and then toning it down to me felt like a, it took some wind out of the sales of the song, I feel like. Right. Yeah. I mean, I can see that. Like I say, it's not my favorite on the album, um, but it has, you know, good things. Definitely not one I would cut, though, like if I was making a list. Right. Like I, where, I feel where, like it deserves to be here. Yeah, whereas I would, because it's kind of, like I say, not bad by any means, but I would say it's not the strongest track on the album by any means. Um, although it has got that line, in your mouth, a loaded gun, pull the trigger, <laughs> have you won? Which is just, yeah. again, woof brutal <laughs> well and to be fair if if disappear was one of your favorite 
songs ever. How do you follow that? Well, that's true. That's true. You know, like what would have been a song that you felt like was was keeping up that momentum, you know? Yeah. Well, well uh, in a way, actually, the next song, which is the, the album Closer. Um, but before we get to that, I just want to quickly point out one thing musically I like about this is the processed guitar during the middle eight. I don't know how they get that sound. I'm not sure what they're putting it through or what frequencies they're dropping out or something, but it is a really unusual, nice, sort of chunky, but not actually heavy sound. And uh-huh. I, I just really like it. It's a really nice bit of processing that I don't think I've ever heard before or since, uh, you know, either on their albums or on any other album. Um, lovely, unusual sound. But yes, after this is track 12, Take Me Down. Which I felt like is the most atmosphere of any song on the album. Now, clearly, you feel differently about Disappear, but I felt like this one really had a great atmosphere to it, and it felt like it was authentic in a way that I didn't necessarily feel with some of the other songs. Okay, okay. I mean, no, I agree with you that this is by far the most atmospheric track on the album. No question. Uh, I think it's a great closer. I think I absolutely love this track. Um but I, yeah, I disagree, obviously, about the sort of authenticity of some of the other previous tracks. Right. But yeah, I absolutely love this track. It is just a kind of, where else could it go? It's got like heaps of atmosphere. It's almost got a feeling of dread, almost. Um, like Morris's, I would agree with that. Morris's drums are almost like sort of orchestral. And again, Steve Edmondson is carrying the melody on the bass. But where else could it go? Like there is nowhere else on this album that you could put this track, I don't think, other than at the end. It would be too much to overcome to not have it be at the end. Yeah. You know, like it would be like, we just talked about it's hard to follow Disappear, right? Like what, granted, there is a song that follows this, but like, how would you? Like, but not into, but only after a gap. I mean, that's right. the thing, you know, this was ostensibly the last track on the album and the track that follows right. it is a bonus that follows after a, a minute of silence. So yeah, as you say, hard to really hard to follow that lovely i mean that great ragged scratchy guitar line that finishes it off as well again yeah it's kind of yeah. so hard to follow there is no better closer for this album i don't think um and there's so many ways to read the lyrics as well that's things like i mean there aren't many lyrics in the song for a start it's not a lyric heavy song but also what exactly is it about there's so many ways you could read it yeah, I mean, I think thematically there are 
there feels like there's multiple ways you could think about a lot of songs on this album, right? Like it's almost like yeah. some of them feel like trying to get out of a toxic relationship. Some of them are about choices that you've made. Some of them are about like, so it, it, to me in some ways, like some of it's like someone else trying to destroy you. Um, there's elements of you destroying yourself. There's, uh, you know, like you talked about, there's elements of the thing that you love um, also destroying you sort of thing, mm-hmm. you know? And so I think there are, you know, maybe, again for them a lot of this stuff is reflective of like their their journey up to this point right yeah and yeah as i say i mean i'm not even going to attempt to guess what this song is about i've never have really i've never tried to kind of figure out what this song is about because there's so few lyrics that it's just it would be impossible it could you know you can put your own meaning on top of it i guess but they are great lyrics and like i say i just absolutely love this song it is uh and i've seen people uh disparage it and say that actually they because this song is you know has almost no guitars in it um well in fact i think it has literally has no guitars in it other than the bass uh and because it's kind of you know so slow and atmospheric what have you that a lot of people don't like it but to me I, i can't think of any better way to close this album except as I said, <laughs> if you have the digipack. Except if we didn't. Except, you know. yeah. What if we didn't? Yeah. If you have the digipack, you get after this track, beautifully fades out with uh, the echo of Steve's bass. Uh, you get one minute, exactly one minute of silence, followed by track 13, the bonus track, I Despair. Which a fucking great a title, song. isn't it? It's yeah. such a great for title a, for, for a goth hair metal song, <laughs> and I despair. Um, what I noticed about this song is it feels more alive than most of the other songs on this album. From a raw energy vibe, yeah, it just feels grittier. The guitars feel more alive. Um. There are things resembling solo esque type playing um, in the song. It just like it just has this great energy. And the vocals are though his delivery is very sort of gritty. Um, 
so yeah, I and even lyrically, like uh, petty highs get me by, but how long must I live with this disguise? Yeah, it's pretty good. Yeah, yeah. I the first my first note on this is literally hark a guitar. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. It's it's like that's the bonus track. It's like if you've made it through this um, goth hair metal album with a lack of guitars and guitar solos, like here's something here's your reward yeah this is definitely the closest thing to a traditional paradise lost track which makes me i mean it sounds almost like something you could have heard on their previous album on draconian times which makes me suspect that's why it's not on the original cut and why it's only a bonus track on the digipack because they probably wrote it when yeah that sounds too much like yeah you know it's like this isn't really in line with what we're trying to do here yeah but it's a good song so, but it really is we'll, a good song, yeah. We'll make it a bonus track. Well, and it's kind of so part of the reason I like this song as the bonus, and I've always kind of you know listened, even when I taped it for my car all those years ago, you know, I always included this track was because it is actually kind of a bit of relief. It's almost it feels almost like climbing back out of the pit after well, after I mean, that for a album, song, you know called, what I mean? For a song called I Despair, <laughs> um, it does feel more uplifting than certainly the song before it yeah but yeah the general vibe so yes even though it is you know it's uh cartoonishly you know i despair being the title of the song like yes it does i think but that to me goes back to like the energy of the energy of the song feels more up yeah well you know i I think see you've got to remember that i despair can also be kind of a dismissive like well, you know it can be taken as kind of like whatever fuck you i despair of you yeah, and you know? i feel like you're right on dude because the lyrics like i hear the same old stories every night spare me all the strife exactly it's defiant you know, like yes exactly which is ironic because they're defiant of their own attitude that has been prevalent <laughs> for the first 12 songs of this album so that is pretty funny yeah um I, and of, i mean of like it's almost like they played a whole album and then pretended a different band did that, and they're like, fucking get a load of these guys, right? With all their <laughs> pissing and moaning about everything. Like, Jesus, spare me that. Like, get over it, right? Yeah. And people the- are like, wait, no, that was you. You did that. No, who are these guys with all their bitching and moaning, huh? Although, actually, and I don't know this for sure, but I suspect just from things that Nick has said over the years about some of his song subjects, I suspect this track is actually probably about... Maybe not somebody specific, but a specific type of person in his hometown, mm. uh, you know, that, that pisses him off and sort of narrow-minded, small-minded people, um, you know, who, uh, yeah, I just kind of, that's the impression I've always gotten from Right, it's like they're track. making fun of the person whose whole identity is I despair. Maybe. Yeah. 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 Um, I mean, that line that came before the one you quoted, my desires never tire but would it feel much better if I died? <laughs> that is, it's a great line, but it, the way it's delivered as well, like I say, it's, it's defiant almost. It's like, yeah. you know, fuck you, I'm going to live. Um, like I said, it feels like climbing back out of the pit almost, mm. which is why I love it. The pit that they dug. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, let's, let's never forget. <laughs> but like I said, if you want even more of a pit, oh boy, yeah, go and listen to Host, the album following this one, which is just... Yeah, massive downer, uh, even more of a downer than this, and has even less guitars and less drums yeah. than this as well. Like there are entire tracks on this album that on that album that feature no drums. 
But that's where, like, to me, like, the whole, like, cheese factor comes in, right? Because it almost feels like they're in on this, and in some ways they're almost poking fun at it in certain ways. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's like the whole, like I said, it's the pit that they dug for 12 songs. Yeah. And then they're like, whew, that was tough, right? But pa- I'm glad we climbed out of that thing. <laughs> but like part you're... of, I mean, like I said, they got along with typo negative partly for, and they've said this, like partly for the reason, because they shared that kind of, you've got to remember, especially British goth, much more than American goth, although it is there in American goth a little as well, is that there is an element of self-effacement. Yes. You know, which is why I'm saying this is goth hair metal. Yeah. There, there is that whole, that whole thing of like, no, we know what we're doing. Exactly. Yeah. We're not like, yes, we're, we're quote unquote serious about this, but also like we know. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. There's, um, you know, famously Paradise Lost are, and I've met them, I can attest to this, but, but or, you know, many, many journalists of the years have said they are actually really nice, funny, affable, pleasant guys, you know? Like, they are really a pleasure to hang out with off stage. Well, and it's like you singing along in the car as you're going from your yeah. happy job to your happy relationship, right? And just, like, singing at the top of your lungs about the despair yeah. and the, <laughs> exactly. you know, the absolute worst feelings in the world and all that stuff. Exactly, right? it's yeah. Like, it's yeah, catharsis. It is, it is a catharsis, 100%, which is, to me, like, such a huge part of what metal is to begin with, right? Exactly, exactly, yeah. yeah. And, and this band does it, you know, as well as, as any other, I think. Um, just, it's a different kind of catharsis to something like, you know, Slayer or Creator. Right. Um, but it is definitely a catharsis, no question. So yeah, that is the album. That is one second. Uh, thank you, Kenneth, for nominating it. Uh, he did feel bad, I'll say to our listeners... <laughs> <laughs> Kenneth did feel bad about it, especially when it was picked and said, oh, uh, actually, maybe I should have chosen something else. But I think I said no, because partly because, like I've said, this is one of my favourite albums, uh, you know, full stop. But also because I think it's been a really interesting album to talk about. And I knew it would be because it is mm-hmm. so unusual for a metal band to put out an album a band who started off, remember, as a death metal band, for heaven's sake, and then, let, you know, just six albums and, what, nine years later, they put out yeah. this, you know? And it wasn't and- entirely unexpected. Yes, it was It was unexpected, but not so much that it, well, to me anyway, that it sounded like a completely different band when I first heard it. I know it did to you, but as somebody right. who did follow them through the when they did this, yes, I was surprised, but I was also like, yeah, but I can still hear that it's them. I think you nailed it. I mean, and I would say that Kenneth understood the assignment, right? The assignment is not to pick the perfect album from every band, because what do you how, have how could to you say possibly well and how could you possibly like, agree on what is the perfect album anyway well but but like you know it's like everybody's oh do rust in peace from megadeth okay it's the greatest guitar metal album of all time we can talk about how amazingly like great it is <laughs> but like what is the like you're like the contrast to that opinion is well i'm just not a megadeth fan okay but like that doesn't change the fact that it's the greatest guitar metal album of all time. It's like, is that the most interesting one to talk about? Right. Probably not. Because like, what, what are you going to talk about other than how amazing it is? And that's where it's like, 
we want to talk about the albums that are most interesting, either because they're a departure for that particular band or because it was a hotly contested, you know, choice by them or because it is, you know, they've they've done something really different on this album or something like that. And that's not to say that we don't ever talk about what people consider to be the best album from certain bands. But like if the goal is to have a good discussion about an album, then that has to be the prime. That's the assignment. The assignment is, would this album be interesting to talk about? And this was a hell of an interesting album. I mean, just for the, you know, fact that it was a departure for them for the fact that um, I don't have the emotional attachment to this band that I would carry that I was like, oh, I was angry when this came out because this is not what I was expecting from this. I didn't, right. I wasn't listening yeah. to them. So I don't have, so I can look back on it with completely different eyes, but still notice that it was a departure from stuff that they have done, you know, um, before and even after that. And so, yeah, it was a great album to discuss. And the fact that it's one of your favorite albums to me, I'm glad we got to talk about it. Well, and that's the beauty of doing these encores, isn't it? Is that, you know, it is, by definition, we are talking about, uh, you know, a record by a band that we have already talked about. So you can, even if you don't know the band that well, you know them enough to recognise that contrast. Um, yep. You know, I mean, like, we're, we're, I mean, we do both know Pantera, for example, but when we did Great Southern Trend Kill, as the encore for Pantera, you know, we could contrast that with Vogue Display of Power because, you know, clearly not quite, I mean, same band in terms of personnel, but absolutely not the same band in terms of their approach and the stuff that they were writing, right. you know, and the same here. And far from their best album because that's power metal. <laughs> well, and I was going to say, you know, look look no further than literally episode one of this entire show where we did um, St. Anger. Right. <laughs> which, which I know has like turned some people off. I know there have been people who've said, who've told us, you know, I almost didn't listen to this podcast yeah. because I saw you covered Percent Anger and I was like, well, fuck that. But then, you know, did and understood what we were doing and have become listeners. But that, to me, that kind of, if that's the case, there must, there must also be people who did go, no, nah, fuck that, and have never listened to it as a result. Totally. So it's almost like our own, like we said about the first track of the Blind Guardian album. You know, you've got to get through that first track, and if you, if it clicks with you, then you're like, oh, okay, I get it now, and now you're into the rest of the album. Well, and almost like, don't you want the show to either introduce you to something new, or to make you go back and revisit something that you might have felt differently about. With new ears, yeah. Totally. Like, Metallica is a great example. We could talk about Kill Em All, we could talk about Ride the Lightning, or we could talk about Master of Puppets. Anyone who likes Metallica is not... They already... Those albums are already locked in. Yeah, they already have their opinion (laughs) on those albums, yeah. (laughs) Uh, Well, not not only that, and, like, almost universally beloved, right? It's just a matter of which one of those is your favorite among those three albums, right? So to talk about any other album in their discography is going to be a more interesting discussion yeah. of that. Otherwise, we're just doing, we're just talking about the greatest albums of all time. Right. Yeah. Right. We, and that would be the mission statement of the show is we're going to, we're going to talk about one of the greatest albums of all time every episode and why it's one of the greatest albums of all time. Yeah. I, I don't know about you. I'd get a bit bored. well yeah i I mean i don't think we'd be talking about it eight years later you know because i feel like we would have gone through our personal lists and we would have solicited from others what their 
best albums of all time were. And like, and the thing is, like, as crazy as it is, all of these are someone's favorite album. Oh yeah, every like, album. There is, is someone favorite. out yeah, there yeah. who absolutely adores Saint Anger. Yep. From Metallic, that that person is out there. Um, and I'm I've just been talking to two hours for the to the person who loves this album and thinks that this album is, you know, one of the greatest albums of all time. Yeah. Well, and there are people, there are Paradise Lost fans who discovered them with the album following this one, the one that the Electronica Absolutely. album, and will tell you that that's their favorite album as a result. Uh, now, I'm, I genuinely think the next one, Host, is a really good album, um, but it is not my favorite Paradise Lost album, partly because it is so different to everything else that they've done. But yeah, there are genuine fans of theirs who discovered them with that album and will say, yep, that's my favorite album of theirs. I wish they'd do another one like it. <laughs> and everybody else right. is like, no. <laughs> but to go back to the uh, the assignment is what what would be a good album to discuss. Exactly. And yeah. this one definitely fit that bill. Yeah. Uh, yeah, it was a great, fun discussion. Thank you for having it with me. Yeah, thanks. Hey, thanks for having me. (laughs) (laughs) For the last eight years. I'd love to come back and uh, talk about another album sometime. Uh, And yeah, this is the final episode of our regular season, our regular volume, the last track of volume six, um, which we started. That was the, this is the volume that started with Rat. Uh, So we've come a long way ourselves since then. Um, So... As always, at the end of a volume, we will have a bonus track of our own to release probably in about a month's time. Uh, not going to tell you what that is. We're going to spring that on you as a surprise. Uh, remember, the bonus track from the last volume was Stronger Than Heaven by Stormwitch. So, you know, mm, we, that was a good it one. was. We have a lot to live up to <laughs> in terms of putting, uh, you know, planting a surprise on our listeners. Uh, but yes, we'll do that. We'll put that out in about a month's time. Then we'll take a couple of months off to recharge, as it were, and then you know god willing we'll be back with volume seven and uh and barrel our way towards year 10 yeah well well and much like um this album it's going to be a real departure the next the next volume oh interesting i haven't completely settled on my like kind of theme for the next one but i do have a few that i'm okay i'm considering so uh in the meantime as always, like I said at the start, if you want to support the show, if you like this and you like the idea of us keeping on doing more and making it to year 10, then you can support us at patreon.com slash thrash it out. Uh, doing so obviously supports the show, but also gives you the chance to nominate tracks for encore episodes like this. Also for our listener choice episodes of which we do at least one every volume and uh, yes, to be randomly selected to be one of our backstage pass guests, which we do a couple of um every volume i said episode i meant volume every volume as well so yeah go to patreon.com slash thrash it out uh, to do that make your pledge and yes join in the facebook group at facebook.com slash groups slash thrash it out or go to thrash it out podcast.com which is our website where you will find all the episodes and links to email and twitter or x it's apparently called now i can't even keep up um and uh, yeah various ways to contact us there uh, but yes, you can always just hail us on social media, email us at thrashedoutpodcast at, is it thrashedoutpodcast at gmail.com? I believe it is. I think it is, so I can isn't pull it? Yeah. up my email real quick. You can find but it I on the website right. anyway. Go to thrashedoutpodcast.com. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, just, yeah. yeah, exactly. That's the best way. <laughs> yeah, that's the, that, then you'll get the actual real email address and not one that I'm making up off the top of my head. <laughs> uh, so yes, until the next time, um, keep thrashing. Take care, everyone.